WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 285. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG Headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia. In today's episode, lots of aviation news, your feedback, and the latest Plane Tales installment, No Distant Lands. So get all settled in, tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions, Electronic devices powered on. Flight 285 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. I'm Captain Jeff, a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier. And we do this little show. I fly for Acme Airlines, I say, because I don't want to divulge the actual airport line for which I fly, and uh, that goes for everybody else here on the show as well. Not that we'd say anything wrong, but, you know, we just got to be careful. And joining me today from Charlotte, North Carolina, we have Doctor, Doctor, a physiatrist, Doctor, 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 a marathon runner, Doctor, Doctor, a skydiver, a commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hello, Captain Jeff. Hello. And yes, I am uh, live on location in the south end area of Charlotte this afternoon. Well, that just got really loud. <laughs> sorry. But, um, sorry. And unfortunately, this is going to be a rather short show for me. So I'm here to say hello and hello to everyone out there. And then I have the pleasure of spending the rest of the afternoon with my dentist, who is right around the corner from here. So. Uh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> and also yeah. joining us from across the pond, we have former fighter pilot, professional photographer, and current wide-body Airbus captain for a major European carrier, Captain Nick Anderson. Hi there, Jeff. Uh, hi, Steph. Uh, I don't envy you having to head off to the dentist in a moment. Uh, I will try not to mention it too many times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hi, and uh, hi, Dan. It's great to be back on the show. And thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, Looking forward to another great show. It's uh, got so much to cover. I I better keep this short. Okay, let's move on to the guy that hasn't been with us for a few weeks. And we're going to find out why here shortly. He is a current first officer on the Mad Dog for Acme Airlines and soon-to-be captain Captain Dana. Good afternoon. I miss all you guys and uh, great to be back on the show. Uh, yeah, I do have a, a bit of catching up to do. I'll do that here in a few minutes, but great to be back and uh, look forward to another great show and and uh, great to see Steph and, and Nick and of course you, Jeff. Of course. Thank you. Appreciate that, Dana. <laughs> uh, always good to see you and uh, glad you're back with us. We uh, can't wait to hear about your your big journey, your big adventure. Um, yeah, <laughs> let's see. You know, I want to do something before we get too far here in the show. 
because uh, I know that uh, Dr. Steph is going to be leaving us for her dental appointment uh, pretty soon. And um, mm-hmm. somebody named Miami Hick, you know, have you heard of that guy? He, uh, he, sent me, he sent me something and he promised or he made me promise him that I would not play this unless everybody was on the show. And of course, you know, when we say everybody, uh, we mean, well, of course, it would be nice if Miami Rick were here with us, but he is not. But uh, the current regulars are all here today. So let's go ahead and um, play what it is that he uh, sent in for us right at the beginning of the show here. So take it away. Welcome back to American Top 40. I'm your host, Casey Kasem. We finally made it to number one. Coming in at the top spot is I Want My APG, written and produced by the world's best pilot, Miami Hick. This record is flying off the shelf, and here it is at last. I Want My APG. That's the way you do it You talk a lot on the APG Now that ain't working That's the way you do it Money for flying and your beer for free Now that ain't working That's the way you do it Let me tell you Them guys ain't dumb Maybe get a little blister on your finger Maybe get a blister on your thumb We've got to fly these McDonnell Douglas. We've got to fly these Airbuses. We've got to move these passengers. And we don't do it for free. See that little pilot with the straps and the mustache? Yeah, buddy. That's his own hair That little pilot flies his own jet airplane That little pilot is a millionaire We've got to fly these McDonnell Douglas We've got to fly these Airbuses We've got to move these passengers And we don't do it for free Outstanding. Awesome. That Yay. deserves a big round of applause. Uh, nice one. I love that. <laughs> that was unbelievably great. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, Thank you, Miami Hick. Loved it. Excellent. So, Nailed it. Absolutely. Now, do you think Dire Straits is going to be on the phone? 
Who? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound anything like anything that they ever sang. No, no. Any, well, uh, that's a bit of an insult. <laughs> it's just purely coincidental. Any, yes. Any insult. Any, Absolutely. Uh, it was superb. And, and they're one of my favorite bands. So I, that was yeah, great. Mine too. Thank you. Uh, Th- thank you, Miami Hick, for uh, yeah, for for really doing that. That was awesome. He just keeps uh, keeps on coming with these hits. Um, so and I suppose should say con- congratulations to Miami Hick. While we yeah, we should. Well. Since we're speaking mm-hmm. of him, uh, Steph, tell us what why we should uh, say that. Well, he a little birdie told me that he got married over I think the weekend this past weekend. Wow! Or earlier in the week. I forget wow, exactly which day, but. Yeah, not well, too long congratulations ago. Yes, congratulations to beautiful bride. Woo. Fantastic. Now, that is really good news. Well done. Yes, congratulations. Sympathy, sympathy card will be in the mail. Yeah. <laughs> on, only kidding. Only kidding. Congratulations. That's really good news. <laughs> that is great news. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, we always like to uh, let everybody know in the community because uh, we, lo- we all love each other and uh, support each other. So. It's always good to good to see something positive like that going on in the community. Um, Steph, before you go, uh, catch us up on what has been happening yep. with you since the last episode. Oh, my goodness. I had a uh, rolling tour of my least favorite airport in Chicago, uh, O'Hare. So I had a wedding to attend myself last weekend. Um, someone in my family got married, so was out there for that for just two days. Um, kind of a strange trip because... We went to see Guns N' Roses on Friday evening, which was awesome. Sorry, none of this is actually aviation related except for my traveling to it from Chicago. But um, but the concert was up in Winston-Salem, which is kind of a strange place for some of the area. But but we were there and then um, got a hotel room that night in Greensboro, flew out from Greensboro in the morning on one of the United Regionals to O'Hare, which was actually a very nice flight. Um, Got in actually a little early, so we were in Chicago by like 8 a.m. for a 1 p.m. wedding. So uh, did that wedding, you know, rest of the day, festivities, dancing, drinking. Um, the next morning, went for a run with my brother. Um, it felt okay for having danced and consumed some alcoholic beverages the night before. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, later on the day, headed back to the airport. And of course, my flight was the one that was delayed. I was actually coming just straight back to Charlotte. I guess it left Las Vegas late. And so I was actually at the airport at the same time as Justice and both of my brothers. Um, their flight was later, but because my flight was delayed, I was saying goodbye to Justice. And I was like, all right, well, it's, you know, my, I know my flight's here. Probably going to be boarding in a minute. So I walked over to my gate and I get there and I knew we were supposed to be on a 737. And I looked out the window and it's a 757 sitting there. And I'm like, uh, so I look back and the information is definitely my flight. And, you know, they're kind of making like pre-boarding announcements. And all of a sudden when the gate agent turns around and goes, what's that plane still doing here? <laughs> oh, that was so, the previous flight. Clearly very, very organized. Yes. Yeah. Very organized. So that took another, I don't know, 20 minutes to actually half an hour to actually get the correct airplane to the gate. And Yeah. Wow. I mean, all told, we were probably only a half hour late getting back to Charlotte. Well, it wasn't Acme Airlines, was it? It was not Acme Airlines. Good. Because we always try hard. Yes, I know. (laughs) But it was comical. All right. What I expected. And with that, I actually have to head over to my appointment. Okay. 
I'm going to, I could probably listen to most of this while I'm sitting there. So I'll be. Oh, okay. So we have to. Not yeah. in the chat room, but. We have to be careful yeah, about t- what t- we're t- saying. Turn the audio, HR, HR turn will the audio off, Steph. We don't want to hear you screaming. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank you yeah all right well you guys have a wonderful show dana it's good to see you back again nick thank you always and jeff i'll see you this weekend yep in a few days all right all right bye-bye bye everyone cheers bye have fun (laughs) 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 so uh Captain Nick, um, I understand that you uh, had a trip out to San Francisco and uh, there was a big shindig uh, all planned, a big uh, ABG meetup out there. Tell us about that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, I know that our West Coast uh, uh, listeners feel they've been let down a little bit uh, by uh, the fact that the APG seemed to be, uh, according to some people, an East Coast orientated uh, show and it's certainly not true. We spread ourselves far and wide into many other countries, but I think in an attempt to compensate, I know you've been out there, and I, uh, my uh, second trip for quite a while, um, have been going out there lately. Um, suggested we might arrange a, a meetup, and um, uh, Jan Sears, Jan the man, he uh, suggested a few pubs near the hotel. So uh, that's what we did. We uh, we went up and uh, had a great meetup. Um, at uh, at the uh, Last Drop Tavern. I think there's a little bit of audio and there might even be a little bit of feedback about that, so I won't say too much. We could probably uh, do those. All right, I'll play the uh, feedback, or excuse me, the audio from the meetup right now. <laughs> hi, hi everybody, it's uh, Captain Nick here and we're sitting in the Last Drop Tavern. Which- is that you playing the flute? No, it couldn't be, you're talking. Who is that playing the flute? Is that Fred? That's the flautist. <laughs> okay, hang on. The flautist played the flute. The flautist. Okay. Yeah. Phlebotomist. Hi, hi everybody. It's uh, Captain Nick here, and we're sitting in the Last Drop Tavern, which means uh, that if you're waiting to be hung, then it is probably the place you'll be for that last drop. Okay, so this is another death sentence. This is the San Francisco meetup, and all these guys who and girls, because we have a, two ladies here, one of which has just disappeared, but Connie's here holding up the uh, holding up the end for the ladies, um, and <laughs> we're trying to we're trying to enjoy ourselves. So far, everyone's having a ball. It's really good. Anyway, enough of me. Uh, I'm going to go around the room and uh, let everyone have their little say. And the first guy is, of course, our great friend Fred, uh, who has been motoring me around today, picking up all sorts of bits and bobs. Fred, hi. Hey, guys. Fred here. Um, And I'm just going to call out Dana, I think, on this one. Dana, if you ride your motorcycle all the way to the almost west coast and you don't make it all the way here, we're going to have to talk about that. So consider this uh, an invitation. That's a nice one, Fred. Okay, uh, this is Connie. Hi, my name's Connie. Uh, this is actually my second APG meetup. Uh, I saw Captain Jeff uh, earlier this summer, and uh, I think it's time for Dr. Steph to come out. Time for Dr. Steph to come to California. We all agree with that. I, I know this is uh, Mike. Mike, what have you got to say, old chap? Hi, everybody. My name is Mike. Um, I guess my um, piece is uh, just for Miami Rick. I think when I started listening, you were just um, doing one of your last podcasts. So just hope to hear from you again soon. We all wish the same. 
Captain Jeff, Steph, Dana. Dana, how could you make it this close and not make it to San Francisco? You're killing me, man. Anyway, uh, love the show you guys do, and uh, you know a little bit about me because I left some feedback earlier, but uh, looking forward to more in the future. Thanks so much. And that, of course, was Jan. So around we go, and reaching across now. Now, this bloke is a limey, okay? He just sounds like an American, but he's pretending. <laughs> Hello everybody, my name is Dave Proctor. I am a recent private pilot whose license actually arrived in the mail today. So this is uh, super exciting, it's like Christmas and I have Captain Nick who looks like Santa in front of me. Uh, yeah, currently working on my instrument. I also work line service in Concord, California and hoping to go all the way to the airlines. A career changer, so if anybody wants information on that, you can reach out to me as to what life is like switching over and uh, thank you for being in California Captain Nick. Uh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Now we got an unexpected uh, visitor to the hangout. Now this guy outranks me. He, uh, he's, he's older than me. He's definitely more handsome and uh, we, we have a training captain of a Boeing 777. So uh, Steve Please tell us all about yourself. <laughs> hey, Captain Jeff. Uh, my name's Steve. I'm a uh, 777 captain out of Newark for uh, Acme Blue. And I live in Florida, and I just happened to be on a layover out here. And a couple days ago, noticed that uh, through a Twitter feed that there was a meetup. And I happened to be staying at the hotel four blocks away and said, what the heck, I'm going to go down there and meet all these fun people. And that's exactly what we're doing. Having a great time. It's enjoyable. Enjoy your podcast. I do a lot of long-distance motorcycle rides, and that's where I catch up on the podcast. So it's fun. Thanks for all that you do and all the work. This bloke has everything. I mean, he's got a bit for Dana, he's got a bit for Jeff. Uh, unfortunately, he's got nothing for me. <laughs> uh, now, if you have seen the Acme logo for uh, Acme Airlines, then you, this is the man to listen to. This is the man to thank. This is the man who designed it all. He's a great private pilot. He's got a wonderful airplane. Tell us about yourself, sir. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Captain Jeff and Steph and Dana and APG guys. Jim Mercado here, uh, enjoying the meetup. Nice to meet everyone here. Um, so APG community, we are working on Nick here to get him to like Boeing. We're working on him feverishly, and I'm sure by the end of the night, in a few beers, he'll be screaming that he loves Boeing. So wish you all were here. Um, Love the show. Keep up the I good work. I was screaming. Nice meeting you, Nick, in person. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Thanks very much. Well, I, I guess if you, if you uh, feed me enough IPA, there is a chance this might happen. Now, uh, am I going to be able to get you? No, no. We've got the lovely wife of this gentleman here, who is another keen APG. A, uh, a private pilot and an ex-copper, as we would say in the UK. So, introduce yourself, sir. Right. Hey, this is Landon. How are you doing, Jeff? Hey, Landon. This is Landon. How are you doing, Jeff? Uh, met you uh, about a month ago. There we yeah. go. And uh, hey, uh, it's glad to be here. I'm here with my fiance Natasha. Uh, she didn't make it to the last uh, last APG meetup in uh, Sunnyvale. 
uh, but uh, glad to be here, and it's great to be here with uh, fellow APGers talking uh, pretty much nothing about airplanes, but also talking about other things in life too as well. So it's good times. Um, yep, wish you guys were all here. Steph, hello. Rick, wherever you are, Miami Rick, wherever you are, and Dana, uh, you need to get you a uh, get you a bid out here to the Bay Area as well. All right. Well, thanks very much. Now, I know uh, Tim Van Ram will be coming along later with Dancing Girls, so uh, I hope to add a little bit onto this later. But for now, this is uh, Captain Nick signing out. He's sitting here beside me, and uh, I don't know, he seems to be such a regular appearance on, uh, you know, man who just loves talking on APG. I'm, I'm going to have a hard job keeping him down to five minutes. Tim, say hello. Hi, everybody. Do I get to hold it? Oh, wow, you're wrong. very trusting. That's what she it's said. It's lovely to be at a meetup, ABG, and get to see everybody again. I'm starting to uh, recognize people at the meetups, and they recognize me too, so that's fun. And I have my friends with me, and I can't wait for them to get on here and speak. Excellent. Now I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. First of all, we've got a young lady whose destination is to sit in the captain's seat of a beautiful airliner, hopefully something like the Airbus A350-1000. What do you reckon? Hello, I'm Teresa Olguin. I just found out about this podcast. Um, I have enjoyed talking with Nick, and uh, my goal is to become a commercial pilot. I just got into an aeronautical university in Florida, so that's exciting. And I also just joined a uh, uh, group uh, called the 99. It was uh, founded by Amelia Earhart, so I'm very excited to be uh, really getting into the aviation community. Well, that's wonderful. And uh, how long do you think it'll be before you get to fly an airliner? Go on, give us a guess. Well, hopefully three years. <laughs> I hope so, too. Well, good luck with your chosen career. And we've got another lovely lady here, I think is a recent acquisition to the APG family. Yes, actually, I just listened to my first podcast today on Amelia Earhart. Because the 99s, she was their first president. And it was started in, what, 1932, 31, for, for women pilots and promotion of women pilots. So I am the godmother of Teresa Olguin. And so my main goal in life is to support Teresa, um, reach her dream of being a, an airline pilot. So she did, did you tell them that you got accepted? Oh, so this January she'll be um, going to Emory-Riddle, and before that she will be getting her mechanics certificate and also her private pilot's license um, if I have anything to do with it. But my role typically besides support is the passenger in the back screaming because <laughs> I don't like turbulence, but I love my goddaughter. Thank you. I think that's excellent. You're just like me. I usually sit and scream as well. That's it. Look, we've been having a fantastic meet-up here. I'm going to have a good look round. I count. I don't know. It's got to be a good 14 or 15 at this fantastic San Francisco meet-up. Anyway, it's been a great evening. And uh, cheers to you all. Back to Jeff. Oh, I wanted to hear some more flute playing. Dang it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I ran out of breath.
<laughs> okay. It's amazing how you do that at the same time as talking into the microphone. Yeah, I know. Isn't that incredible? So what, like, what it was... it's, it's a nose flute. <laughs> if, you, if you hadn't met one before. <laughs> or, or, or the uh, not-quite-so-popular butt flute. But uh, anyway, we're not going to go there. Oh, what? I guess yeah, this I is a family do. show. <laughs> exactly good, thing right. H- yeah. good, good thing HR is not here right now. Well, yeah, we're I said, not going to talk about the butt flute. No, I said um, anything but flute. This is what we're going to talk about on today's show. Nothing but the flute. Okay, gotcha. I've got some thank yous to say, by the way, because uh, I was given some gifts. I got uh, two lovely uh, books uh, of uh, aerial photography from uh, Tim, and uh, I've got Above London and Above San Francisco. They're fabulous. And a rather intriguing American flag that uh, I, uh, is, uh, looks a bit like a ship's pennant and um, only has 35 uh, stars, but in a circle. So that's what that looks like. Um, so I'm intrigued nice. with that. And uh, he uh, also gave me a lovely hat, which I'm now going to wear for the rest of the show. Uh, and um, Jan, the, uh, the guy that was on earlier, uh, he um, gave me some stuff as well. Now, he flies uh, an Australian aircraft um, called a Gipper, uh, which he does um, patrols for the uh, California Highway Patrol. Um, so he's there in their air operations branch as a pilot, and he's the Golden Gate Division. And he gave me this fabulous challenge coin. Now, there will be listeners wow. out there who don't know what a challenge coin is, but it's one that's specially struck, usually by military units or certainly uh, units that have a sort of uh, hierarchy and organization, like, say, the police or the fire departments and things. And there's history goes back quite a long way. Um, it's, a lot of it's apocryphal, but it goes back uh, perhaps to the First World War where a guy um, who was uh, an American pilot, uh, he gave all the guys in his squadron some coins that he had uh, specially made to carry with them. And uh, when one of the pilots was uh, shot down behind enemy lines, he escaped. And the only thing he had with him when uh, he tried to get back to the Allied lines, in fact, he was trying to get through to the French lines, was this coin in a pouch around his neck. And uh, they were going to shoot him because they thought he might be a spy trying to get across. But um, as it turned out, he managed to show them this coin, uh, and it was taken then that he was an American, and instead of shooting him, they gave him a bottle of wine. <laughs> but uh, challenge coins are very special, uh, and I really appreciate that, Jan. That was uh, a lovely gift, as well as um, giving me a super T-shirt, which I've been wearing so much it's now dirty. I'm afraid it's in the wash. And um, a lovely mug. So, uh, uh, yeah, with his aircraft on it, which is this, this uh, oh. Yeah, there's a funny, uh, funny. Uh, it's a bit like a caravan. This uh, yeah. Australian Gipper. Interesting. So that was uh, a fabulous one. And um, Jan's actually left some feedback. Do you want to me? Uh, or do you want to read that, Jeff? Um, either way. Why don't I read okay. it? Because he's talking about Go you. Go ahead, sir. Yeah. Okay. Hello, APG crew and listeners. What a great time we all had with Captain Nick at the Last Drop Tavern in San Francisco on August twelfth. I met so many wonderful people from Connie and Mike, who are avid av geeks. Dave who had just received his private pilot's license in the mail that day and wants to be an airline pilot, Steve, who is a 777 captain for Acme Blue, and all the other wonderful aviation lovers. Captain Nick told us all much about his life and how being a long-haul captain is. The experience was, for me, one I will never forget. 
Fred did an awesome job organizing this, and it was a pleasure to meet so many who live in the San Francisco Bay Area who have the love of machines that break the bounds of gravity. Captain Nick, a warm thank you from me for you taking the time, even though it was 0400 for your body clock. Your passion for not only flying, but for those that have a love for it is a powerful force. Thank you so much. And now I have several new friends to share this love with. These meetups are taking my interest in aviation even higher. Godspeed and thanks to the APG. Wow. He's a lovely guy. Lovely guy, Jen. So wow. uh, a lot of time for him. Um, uh, by the way, I forgot to mention my hat, which I also got from Tim. So thank you. Um, and I was just going to mention my last couple of trips because lots kind of happened to me <laughs> that was worth uh, um, mentioning on the show. So if you don't mind, Jeff, could you indulge me for another five minutes? Sure. Go ahead. Okay, great. So uh, coming home from um, New York the other day, it was just fascinating. Uh, I shouldn't actually have said New York. Coming home from an East Coast destination that is uh, somewhere near a Long Island, um, I <laughs> had a very interesting uh, situation. We were taxiing out. Uh, we were in a 330, so we, we were doing a reduced engine taxi, only had one engine going. When you do that, it takes you quite a while to wind up the other engine. Then you've got to complete all your control checks and the before takeoff checklist, which is probably the longest checklist we do, and then let the engine warm up for at least five minutes before you uh, apply full power. So we're just chugging out, and we know there's about an hour and five minutes taxi time, So, and we're expecting to turn, uh, go out towards runway 22 and then turn left all the way around the end of uh, 13 left and then come all the way back down to the end of 22. You're nodding because you know the route, Jeff. It's, uh, it's just one of those long routes you go on when there's a huge queue ahead of you. And uh, we got asked to uh, stay on taxiway Echo, which is one that sort of scoots straight, straight over uh, avoids that big loop and goes straight to the threshold. And I thought, well, that's a bit odd. And then they asked us to get a delivery frequency. So I'm saying I'm, I'm suspicious here. Um, and I asked my first officer who was to, on his very first line trip out of training. Uh, so I asked him, let's get this other engine going. I've, I've got a funny feeling in my water. Anyway, when we got to delivery, uh, there was a lovely guy there who uh, said that his sister's uh, daughter was on board and uh, would uh, we kindly pass on thanks uh, uh, and uh, wish her a, a safe trip, which, we, of course, we said we would do. And he then said, uh, oh, by the way, um, we're going to give you a bit, a bit of a shortcut. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, he uh, sent us back to ground, who cleared us straight across uh, the runway where the um, one three left were facing uh, up to the threshold. And we're just working like one arm pay pangers trying to get all our checks out of the way. Uh, and uh, they just put us next in, in line for takeoff. Uh, and it must have carved a good 30 minutes off our flight time because that taxi is just very long. Um, so once we got airborne, I was intrigued to find out uh, a little bit more about this young lady, went back to chat to her. So she was 12 years old and um, she was on a trip back to London. And um, because of the assistance of uh, uh, her family, um, the company was saved a considerable amount of money and time. And so we eased her up to upper class and uh, she enjoyed a very pleasant trip home. So uh, I would like to thank that anonymous uh, member of that uh, uh, wonderful organization at that airfield, which is uh, somewhere near a Long Island. 
Uh, and um, <laughs> thank them for saving Acme Red. It's all very anonymous, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of money and getting me home on time. It's much, much appreciated. Yeah, no, nobody knows who, who or what you're talking about. There's no way. <laughs> no, no way. No way they can work that. <laughs> I'm completely <laughs> stumped. I have no idea. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, the only other thing that happened was that uh, I took a, an – uh, Jaguar, if you've got any petrol heads out there, we took a Jaguar XRJ15 out to San Francisco in the hold, which was rather nice to have that on board. I got some picture of, pictures of it I put out on uh, Twitter, I think, and uh, what a lovely uh, sorry, motor car to have in the hold. It was um, very smooth. Yeah, I saw, the, uh, too, so. I saw the little exchange between you and Miami Rick uh, regarding the uh, hauling of that car. On your yeah. Airbus, yeah. it goes just That's one right. Jag. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's only, I mean, uh, we've actually got a bigger cargo hold than a seven forty seven four hundred, so uh, oh. we could have fit a lot more. Oh yes, people don't know that three forty six hundred has got a big cargo hold. It's very good at carrying cargo, so I don't make a big thing of it because I don't want to embarrass uh, my. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyway, so thanks uh, yeah. for indulging me, Jeff. That's the thing I've got over there. Sure, yeah. Uh, that's a cool story. Uh, that's neat. All right. Uh, let's see. Shall we talk about Dana's adventure, or should maybe we go with uh, my little meetup in uh, Louisville first, as long as we're on the meetups? Um, kind I, of, I, would uh, say do, I would say do the meetup. Okay. Absolutely. Let's do that. Well, before I do that, I, I wanted to acknowledge uh, when I was at Oshkosh, um, I uh, missed seeing somebody named Sam Wiltzius, I think is the way you pronounce his last name. Here's his uh, letter to me. Uh, the reason why I have a physical letter and not a email letter is because, um, well, he was going to, well, let me read his letter. This came in a big box. Hi, Jeff. Hope you enjoy these seven Wisconsin beers. Let me see. I'm going to go ahead and see if I uh, can uh, put that on the uh, video for those of you watching the live stream. Okay. Those six or seven, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven beers were uh, in the box. And he says, one of them was a custom beer. I had a friend, Phil, brew just for Osh. And that's the one, uh, the third from the, well, I don't know. This is backwards to me. So anyway, it's the one that says OSH on it. And I'm holding up, well, you can't see it because I don't have the camera on right at the moment. But anyway, I drank that last night. It was really good. It's a... Uh, uh, deadheading Imperial Stout, brewed for OSH Oshkosh, and a very very cool, very professional label actually. Um, very impressive for a homebrew. Anyway, he said one of them was this custom beer I had a friend filled brewed just for Osh. This was a total run of thirty two bottles, so very limited, and had to fi uh, fight some people back with a stick at Osh to keep them from drinking your bottle. I know it's not an IPA, but I still hope you enjoy this wonderful stout with a fun label. I, I did. It was a really good beer. Uh, so please tell your friend, Phil, that uh, I really, really enjoyed it. So the other six are IPAs from various breweries in Wisconsin. Thank you so much for what you and the team does. I love listening weekly and poking my head into the chat room when I have time. Now, I don't know if uh, Sam is with us today while we're recording this. This is on Thursday the 17th of August. Um, I don't think I see him piping up in the room there. So anyway, Sam, thanks um, very, very much for your, uh, and you know what? I'm kind of glad that uh, we didn't um, 
see each other at Oshkosh and you didn't give me these beers while I was there because uh, Dr. John Brown uh, gave me um, uh, like, what was it? Two six packs worth of like 16 ounce cans that just about broke my back. And if you had come up with to me with these seven other beers, I don't think I would have made it to the parking lot. So I'm glad that you had to send them to me. <laughs> not not sober, at least. Yep. I was going to say the drink, the trick, uh, Jeff, is to drink them, right? Then they, then well, they're easy true. to carry. That's true. But I didn't, you know, I wanted to savor these a little bit, you know? <laughs> but there were a lot of friends there that probably would have helped me uh, take oh, care yeah, of that's, that. Oh, yeah, that's the downside of, of opening them. <laughs> yes. So that's why I didn't, because I, you know, I was selfish. I wanted to drink all these myself. Anyway. So uh, thank again, thank you again, Sam. And uh, he uh, he has a little um, venture, I guess, wired for flight. I asked him about that, and uh, it was some kind of a software-related thing, uh, so, uh, apps for flying, and that kind of thing. And he said that they've kind of gone into a different direction, but he'll let me know uh, in the future. You know, if, if something comes of this uh, wired for flight, which is a very cool um, domain. So. Uh, Good luck with that, Sam. And um, also, that's, this trip that I was on last week, a four-day trip, Little Rock, the second day, I was supposed to meet up with um, somebody, um, I think Robert, um, in Little Rock and perhaps others uh, in the area, but uh, never made it to Little Rock. And uh, I'm sad about that, but it just didn't work out because we had a mechanical issue um, in Norfolk, Virginia, and we uh, had to wait for... The uh, what was wrong with the airplane? Oh, the brake. Yeah, we were pushing back from the gate and something was like you could just tell there was some kind of resistance. Like, in a, you know, obviously the brakes were released because you can't, you, you know, if the brakes are set, you cannot push the airplane. And so we were rolling backwards a little bit, but you could just tell it was labored. I'm thinking, is that our jet or is that his tug? And I said, can you feel that? And he goes, yeah. And I said, does that feel normal to you? And he goes, no. <laughs> I said, OK, let's stop. And I said, I think one of the brakes is grabbing or hanging. So he tried to pull us the other direction. Same thing. In fact, I think it broke the tow bar. And uh, so why don't you just, you know, make sure it's just not your tug. So he got another tug. I think he did that first. And then he started to try to drag us. And um, that's when the tow bar broke. But anyway, uh, they eventually got us back to the original position at the gate. And we went outside and looked at the brakes and one of the brakes, the number four, uh, the right outboard main uh, brake uh, just didn't look the same as the others. So we suspected that that was the culprit. So we had oh, to wait. I for just it. thought you'd, you'd forgotten to pull the anchor up. Yeah. Well, we checked that first. That was the very oh, okay. first thing we did. Okay. Yeah, we looked at the little door that's uh, below our, our feet. You know, the, the same one that we use to drop like little, little bits of food to the animals in the hold. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah we the the is anchor the, was in is that with the lever for the bluetooth is as well jeff <laughs> yes yes uh so uh anyway we we determined that that was indeed the the problem and it was contract means that they had to send in a part from atlanta and so anyway we spent probably i don't know how many hours there that day seven eight hours and then we missed the deadhead to a little rock um i, I thought there was a chance i was going to make it uh, but uh, because everything took so long, by the time we got back to Atlanta, we had missed the deadhead flight from Atlanta to Little Rock. And by that point, I think we were now approaching the end of our duty day. So they said, just go home and then come back tomorrow, pick up the trip from there. So that's what we did. And so uh, hopefully um, back out in Little Rock uh, next month, 
we'll try this again. Uh, but we did uh, make it into Louisville on Wednesday of last week, and I got to meet up with uh, some APGers there at the Louisville Slugger Museum. And uh, those folks were Trent, Justin, Andrew, and Stuart, and I have some audio of that meetup. So let's listen to that, if you don't mind. So, hey, we're at the, what's the name of this place? The Muscle, the Muscle and Burger Bar. Thank you. And uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, and I'm with a great group of guys. We just uh, finished uh, going to the Louisville Slugger Museum, learning everything you wanted to know about wood. Now I have staff's attention. Uh, no, just kidding. That's what she said. Uh, learned a lot about uh, how they make baseball bats. And, yes, one of, one of the participants here is drinking good wood. Wow, that blows my mind right there. Uh, anyway, um, Goodwood Lager, I should say. Uh, we're here sitting at a table in this room in the back, and it's actually, believe it or not, quieter than the other part of the uh, restaurant. So hopefully you can hear us. We're going to be passing the microphone around as we do. Uh, but uh, anyway, so, so introduce yourself and then tell us a little bit about yourself. And, uh, yeah, that's about it. And you know, well, here we go. I'm going to start to the guy on my left who kind of organized this meetup. Uh, took the bull by the horns, as uh, Dispatcher Mike likes to say. So here we go. Here's Trent. Hi, my name's Trent. Uh, I go to Eastern Kentucky University in Richmond, Kentucky. Uh, I'm in my last year working on my single-engine commercial. And I uh, just want to say thanks for Jeff for coming out for us tonight. And I have a little gift for him, too, if it comes down to the bag. It's a personalized Louisville Slugger mini bat to hit his FO with. And it says Captain Jeff. And on, below that, it says the airline pilot guy. Thank you. This is awesome. And, and I'll, I'll take a picture of this and put it in the show notes. Wow. Thank you. No problem. I've never had a personalized bat. Yeah. So hit your FO with it. Hit Dana with it a couple times. Oh, you don't want to let Dana even get a hold of this. You've heard what Dana oh, does to no, uh, captains. No, no. You know, he hits him on the head if he doesn't like what they're doing. No. <laughs> so I'll go ahead and pass it on to the next guy to my left. Uh, my name's Justin. Uh, all of us here tonight, aside from Captain Jeff, are uh, students at Eastern Kentucky University. I just graduated in May, and I'm finishing up my CFI at the moment. Um, spent the summer out in Colorado with an internship studying international procedures, and December I start another internship for 12 months with, um, we'll call them Acme Brown, here in Louisville um, with their training department. I'll pass it on to the next guy. Hi, I'm Andrew. Um, I also graduated in May. I had been a uh, professional flight major at EKU and uh, got my private license, my multi-engine rating, and my instrument rating. But I've switched to uh, uh, airline management um, as my focus. So uh, right now, just uh, looking for another career, and I uh, really just want to thank Captain uh, Jeff for coming out today. Hi, I'm Stuart. I uh, also went to EKU, recently finished. Um, got my commercial in single and multi. Sorry, single engine and multi. Got my CFI, and I'm in that phase for looking for work. So, 
Hopefully this helps. <laughs> Anybody out there listening? Uh, he's ready to work. Uh, great bunch of young aviators out here. Very impressed with, as I'm always impressed with, uh, uh, people in this world of aviation, especially the young people. Um, what a what a great time! It was funny. We were at this uh, baseball museum, and guess what? We were all talking about after we finished the tour. We were all standing around and we started to talk about the uh, the uh, aviation museum, the U.S. Air Force Aviation Museum in Dayton. Talking about XB70s and C141s and Concords and all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, we're all true av geeks. Uh, anyway, so here we are. Looks like our food is just getting here, so I think it's time for me to stop talking and start eating. So, again, great time here. That's all. Bye. <laughs> that was it. Uh, we had a great time, um, and it, it really was funny. We were at this baseball museum and baseball bat manufacturer, and we were out there surrounded by all this history of bat making and everything else, and we were talking airplanes. I thought you could really tell that we're a bunch of hardcore aviation geeks. <laughs> uh, in fact, oh, that's nice. Uh, what do you have on your head there, Dana? A little baseball helmet. Okay. Yeah, it's a little bit too small, I'd say, for your head. But uh, I've heard that before. <laughs> so, and you, I see uh, you have a this, baseball this bat plastic, there as well. This, okay. Yeah, the, the, uh, the plastic is just not, it's just not a big enough helmet for me. Yeah. So. Okay. Well. Um. Let's see. I'm so a baseball fan. There was a there was a portion of this uh, museum slash tour place, whatever, um, that had a bunch of Legos. And in, in this case, I mean Legos or Lego, you know, from from Denmark, you know, the little Lego plastic Lego? interlocking plastic pieces. Not talking about the big city in Nigeria, Nick. And um, okay. <laughs> and they had all these uh, baseball um, parks made out of Lego and. So they had a little place where you could like put, I think it was mainly for children, but uh, I believe it was Stuart uh, started playing with some of the Legos over there and he uh, created uh, this um, masterpiece. Uh, I have it again. If you're watching the video, uh, you should be able to see he made a little airplane. So again, you can't get, you just can't get the, the aviation out of a, out of an aviation geek when you go out in public. And uh, I noticed, Nick, you mentioned something about Natasha, that she'd never, ever want to uh, attend another meetup again. <laughs> she wasn't impressed with all the aviation geekery. Oh, no, I, I was, I was uh, putting words into her mouth. Oh, uh, I, okay. I think she was looking at her husband, Landon, uh -huh. and going, uh, is this really what you do in your Satoshi? <laughs> Beyonce. Beyonce. So I was just oh. a little bit worried there. Yeah. You know, she's going, I think she formed a slightly different opinion of, of him after he spent about two hours drinking beer and hanging out with us. She, said, is this? she was just thinking to herself, I can see the cogs turning. Is this what our marriage is going to be like? <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking. Landon, that was a bad move. You should wait until you, after you've, uh, you know, you've, yeah, you've wait, wait done until the, she signed on the dotted line. Exactly. <laughs> oh well. Um, so, okay, that was it for our uh, Louisville lay, uh, not layover, but uh, meetup, and had a grand time. So, thank you again, uh, Trent, Justin, Andrew, and Stuart for the uh, nice little Louisville Slugger bat, and uh, I really do appreciate it. Had a great time. Okay. Now, the long-awaited um, 
explanation of why you, Dana, have not been on the show for the, for the last, what, two or three weeks? Two, two, two episodes, okay. uh, 83 and 84. Okay, what? so explain yourself. <clears throat> well, I tried to be on the show, actually. I, I, I made uh, my cell phone a hot spot. And, mm-hmm. That didn't work out, but, I guess. I, well, I brought my laptop with me, and I brought the microphone. Actually, is uh, really uh, dirty. I have to clean it. It uh, sat in my saddlebag for three weeks. Ended up going on a, a little road trip uh, on the Harley. Got invited by a, a fellow uh, piloted Acme to uh, join him on a, a three-week adventure. So I took him up on that. Um, part of the reason why I was not able to join the shows is I was on the motorcycle quite a bit. But another part was I was very remote. Most of the places that we stayed, there was no cell phone service, internet service, Wi-Fi, or anything else. So um, I thought about tweeting uh, how my trip was going. Uh, and did not do so because, well, most of the time that I had any type of services when I was on the motorcycle. And, you know, as you, you saw today, Dana, don't be texting while you're riding your motorcycle. Well, I don't do that. I actually was at a stoplight and okay. I just want to get the response back. So, but uh, the trip was uh, 7,000 as crow flies, 7,221 miles is how many miles I rode my motorcycle over 19 days, including getting out to the Bay Area, which I heard a couple comments from the uh, meetup out there. Uh, I was being uh, led by a, a fellow um, fellow uh, rider, and we spent very little time, well, actually spent a little too much time in the Bay Area uh, with mechanical issues on my motorcycle. Oh. But, uh, yeah, I actually ended up, my motorcycle ended up in the shop not once but twice on this trip. Hmm. Yeah. So, um <clears throat> We uh, the, the the basic route was we came out of uh, Georgia. We went straight across um, Alabama, Mississippi, cross over the Mississippi River. That's when I knew I was really far away from home, and uh, went through Oklahoma, Panhandle, Texas, uh, New Mexico, the upper part of New Mexico, which is Taos, uh, up into the mountains, beautiful area. Uh, then into Arizona to the Grand Canyon, then into so- SoCal. We were originally supposed to go see uh, the guy I was going. His his uh, daughter lives out in the L.A. area, but she was tied up, so we we slipped past the uh, L.A. area. Oh, I missed. Uh, we, we went through Vegas um, and went to Death Valley. That was quite interesting. And my uh, on my GPS on my uh, uh, bike, I had the ability to look at elevations, so I was able to see what my highest elevation was and my lowest elevation. And, so so D- Death Valley doesn't have the reputation it's supposed to have because you're still alive. <laughs> yeah, I made it through. Oh, well, believe it or well not, done. you want to know, I was, I was thinking about that this morning when I was packing up my gear and I was uh, just outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee on, on, on the uh, Tennessee River, a beautiful uh, campground actually. And I'm sitting there and looking down at my arms and my, my shirt. I am completely and totally soaked in sweat. And I was thinking back to when I was in Death Valley and how Death Valley really isn't the hottest place. The southeast United States is the hottest place in this country after exploring everything. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't have that reputation. Beautiful place. I um, mean, come down uh, over the, 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 the uh, mountain pass and you keep on. I kept on watching the well, basically a timeter, but uh, the uh, the GPS countdown elevation. I think the lowest I got was minus 86 feet. I have to, I'd have to look at the photos. I haven't gone through them yet. Um, then went to, up to Yosemite. 
beautiful, beautiful place, Yosemite National Park, left Yosemite, and that's when my motorcycle decided to have a conniption. It uh, overheated. Ironically, when we were in Las Vegas, I looked over my buddy that I was riding with, and his motorcycle is not uh, liquid-cooled. You know, the uh, newer motorcycle is liquid in air-cooled, which is what mine is. And I looked at him and said, you worried about your motorcycle overheating because we're stuck in uh, you know, afternoon uh, rush hour, five o'clock traffic. And he says, "No, no, I'm, I'll be okay." And the next thing you know, his his motorcycle, the, the engine is pre-igniting, so that's not a good thing. So, ironically, nothing happened. His motorcycle, my motorcycle, ended up having the heat issue. So, uh, my luck, as always, uh, the part was on national back order, so nobody had it in stock. Uh, went to a couple of different dealerships on on Sunday, and nobody would work on it, and. I, we found the one part in uh, California, and it was scheduled to be put into a bike the following morning in Eureka. And they told me it was used. So uh, I was kind of SOL until they called me back and said, well, good news. UPS just confirmed they have three new water pumps coming in, and it's coming in the truck today. I was like, wow, there is a God after all. So we uh, left the uh, uh, wine country area, which was beautiful to ride around. Um, and then we went up to the Pacific Coast Highway north of San Francisco up to Fort Bragg. And then that's where it cuts back into the 101. If anybody's on the West Coast knows the 101 uh, it goes all the way up and down, uh, up into Eureka. I mean, I, I got to be honest with you, it's probably the most beautiful ride I've ever had. It's the, the uh, route where the Pacific Coast Highway north of San Francisco going up uh, to Fort Bragg. Absolutely gorgeous. Then we went up through uh, um, Crescent City, up through into Oregon, over to Crater Lake, which was quite an interesting place. It, you know, the crater uh, is full of water. Um, toured around there a little bit, and, and, and all of this is happening very quickly. We're really not stopping to enjoy very much. We're stopping to take photographs here and there, but most of the time I'm on the motorcycle, I'm taking photographs as we're going by. And, you know, just putting the camera in the air and taking photographs because uh, it was it was a very aggressive uh, itinerary. So we left Crater Lake. We went over to uh, and drove through. My God, I did not realize Eastern Oregon is absolutely gorgeous, desolate. Not a whole lot of people there, um, but it absolutely it went through some valleys. Um, through a mountain range, it was, I mean, and, and I had just put my camera away. I thought, you know, the sun's going down. There's nothing for me to take photographs, and that was the wrong thing to do because it was fantastic. Went over to Yellowstone, which is a magical place. Enjoyed that, and anybody that's ever heard of uh, Beartooth Highway, um, Beartooth Highway is uh, probably my favorite motorcycle road I've ever been on. It's over, um, over uh, a mountain. It goes up to just about 12,000 feet or about roughly two miles in the into the air. And uh, that was fun. And then over to Sturgis. I made it to Sturgis. There it is on my shirt right there. Nice. So that's in uh, Wyoming? That is actually South Dakota. Oh, South Dakota. Okay. South Dakota. We, we went to the Black Hills. Did some riding there. Went to uh, see Mount Rushmore. Um, another great, uh, great uh, ride out of there. was uh, you know a couple of real good twisties, but they have the um, Spearfish Canyon. Absolutely gorgeous when you're in the canyon and you get walls on both sides of you. And then uh, ultimately made it home uh, and 
back on APG about an hour and a half after I arrived back after being gone for 19 days. Oh, wow. Well, thanks and so much for uh, for coming on. I mean, you just got home, literally just got home. Literally just got home. And, uh, you know, during my ride, I did a lot of radio listening, but I, I listened, uh, listened to the APG, obviously, uh, both both last episodes, heard some really good comments, uh, one um, from uh, Kiwi. Um, about my computer, which, by the way, I have a glass of water, and I'm using my my uh, refurbished Apple computer this afternoon, and no beer anywhere near it at all. Uh, so. <laughs> Very sensible, Dana. <laughs> yeah, so if water goes on it, you know, hey. Uh, but anyways, uh, yeah, it was, uh, the computer's back. I'm back. Uh, I've got a nice beard. You know, for those folks on the radio side of things can't see it, but I haven't shaved in 23, uh, 24 days. It's been kind of nice. You know, in, in, uh, in my whole experience, and I think this is probably, I really can say this is true a couple times I've had some meetups. I met some of the APG listeners. One of the things that I was taken back most by is how nice, once you get away from some of the big cities, how nice the American people are um, very, very, uh, very friendly, very um, courteous, very helpful. Um, and uh, I just really enjoyed getting out and meeting people and talking to people and seeing this, the, the wonderful country. You know, we get to see it from 35,000 feet all day long, but until you get down there in the nitty gritty and, 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 and go like we did all back roads and, and see um, all these unique places. And, and one of the things I did, you know, aviation related on, on this trip is I was really amazed at how many small general aviation airports there are in this country and how many of them I drove by. Um, and got to talk to some of the uh, some local aviation folks uh, at the airports that you know we, we stopped you know we stopped at um, one place in uh, I forget whether it was New Mexico, but it was you know it's quite literally a truck stop an airplane stop on the airport. So you know I started talking to aviation and it was it was it was fun it was exciting and uh, but what kind of bothered me is all these airports I never even saw one general aviation airplane flying. Um, of all the airports I saw, and it had to have been about three dozen. So, um, beautiful country, great time, and I'm very happy to be back safe, of course, um, and also um, fortunate to have the opportunity to come back to the APG and, and tell you all about it. It has nothing to do with aviation, but it was very enjoyable. Well, you got some aviation elements in there. I know? sure did. You're flying down the highway in that big hog. <laughs> that certainly sounds like it was an epic trip. Well done, Dan. It, it, it really, you know, it, in my life, you know, there there are certain things in life that 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 either form you, form you, change you, or define you. And uh, there, there's only one one event I can think of that's more defining in my in my life, more enjoyable in my life that uh, I've had, and that's marrying my wife. That's uh, that's the, the number one thing I've ever done. This thing is th- this trip was number two. I mean completely out of my comfort zone i've never never really grew up i mean when i was a kid i did a little bit of camping but never did real camping um never you know did a whole lot of adventure outside of the the realm of my uh, my neighborhood or or 
that much traveling. So this was, you know, I've never been away from my wife for, for three weeks, uh, completely out of my realm. So it was, it was a big adventure and it turned out very well. I can't say I like the camping so much. <laughs> I was going to say, did you do camping the entire time? All, all but one night we were, we went to Yellowstone and, um, we were unable to secure a campsite there. So we ended up having to get a $300 a night hotel room. So it was uh, quite expensive, but, uh, yeah, the entire time we're out in, in, and I will, I will say our state park and in, in national park system here in this country is, is amazing. Um, some, you know, facilities a lot better than others, but we primarily camped out at state parks and, and, uh, or national parks and, you know, shower facilities, bathroom facilities. The best one was in Oregon and it was God, God rest my soul for saying this, but it was run by all women and it was the nicest, cleanest facility of them all. Well, of so, course they like things. Clean. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was great. Uh, it, it was just, you know, the camping part of it. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe not, but the, uh, the, uh, the bike, the being on the bike, I thought after, you know, the first day that my butt would be so sore and I would be able to walk and my back would be killing me. And and it was farthest from the truth. It's 7,221 miles and I'm ready to go get back on the bike right now. It's just amazing. Amazing. Very and cool. that's that's how, you know, that's how we feel about aviation. You know, mm-hmm. that's what keeps on driving us in aviation and uh, anybody that uh, that uh, – um, is thinking about getting into it, like your meetup over there, Nick, uh, in San Francisco with the, the young lady going to uh, um, Embry-Riddle or the career changer, you know, that's the type, same type of feeling that I had riding this motorcycle. It's the same type of feeling I had when I learned, started learning how to fly. Uh, if it's something you really enjoy, then just go ahead and do it. Absolutely. So, yeah, good point. Go for Very it. Very good point. Well, thanks, Dana. Um, Thank you for the time to... to, yeah. to all right. Well, well, that explains why I, didn't, I couldn't tweet. That explains why I couldn't tweet, and that's why it explains why I couldn't uh, join the show. I was just too remote. Yeah, but you know what? I think that uh, just concentrating on that adventure and those experiences was more important. So we knew you'd be back. So I'm here. All right, great. And uh, <laughs> now it's time to move on and thank those people who support our show financially. We call it the Coffee Fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee, I love tea. I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. I love coffee, I love tea, I love the APG community. And I know all of you do as well. And as I mentioned, if you want to support the show financially, you can do so by joining the Coffee Fund Cadre and uh, participate in the Coffee Fund. And since the last episode, we have two ways to do it. Uh, The Coffee Fund Classic Method uh, via PayPal and also Patreon. Uh, You can become a patron of the show. And since the last show, I did that for dramatic (laughs) effect. Um, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that when I, uh, <laughs> when I edit the show. Anyway, since the last show, using the Coffee Fun Classic method, 
Andrew Wilson, and recurring payment from Jeff Moeller, Jeff and Anissa. Anissa. I don't know if they made it out to the meetup or not, Nick, but they're in the uh, Bay Area as well. I've met them a couple of times. But anyway, uh, great folks out there in Northern California. Uh, and then I mentioned the uh, uh, Patreon, becoming a patron. Since the last episode, Austin Noska and two new executive producers, Tanya. Yay, Tanya. She's with us in the chat room right now. Thank you, Tanya, become, for becoming an executive, executive producer. And also Ben Richards, uh, another new executive producer. And uh, we appreciate your patronage. Patronage. That's it. And with that, I think it's time to wrap it up as far as the Coffee Fund is concerned. Again, you can learn more about the Coffee Fund by heading over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. This from Aviation Daily, uh, part of the uh, uh, Aviation Week conglomerate. Um, pilotless commercial aircraft? Follow the money. This is from Michael Bruno, Aviation Daily, August 7th. Many of you sent in feedback uh, regarding some aspect of this news item. Uh, the big bank, UBS, put out a paper or an article or whatever uh, saying, uh, they uh, or analysis, I guess, that think of all the money we're going to save by getting rid of those pesky pilots. Uh, quote, meaningful savings can be generated via mission optimization, greater predictability, and reduced flight crew and training costs. A new report from UBS Aerospace Airlines and Logistics Sector Analysts. Younger, 18 to 34 years old, and more educated respondents were found to be more willing to fly on a pilotless plane. This bodes well for the technology as the population ages. The analysts see a potential profit opportunity worth about $35 billion for the aviation and aerospace manufacturing sectors. That includes more than $26 billion in pilot cost savings for the airlines that UBS covers. And then they go on breaking it down some more dollar amounts. And uh, again, <laughs> this uh, the people that come up with these crazy ideas, uh, obviously don't know much about the uh, the way an airplane works and um, they pro I'm sure they're not pilots they don't understand how it, you know if everything is perfect and they're you know the, the weather is perfect and nothing goes wrong with the airplane well sure and an airplane can fly autonomously and uh, safely and save the airlines a lot of money problem is <laughs> you can't that's a perfect world that we don't live in. You know, we, we have weather, and we've mentioned this on earlier shows, where 
Every flight is different because the weather is always different. And there are times when you're looking at something out your window and you're going now people would say, well, I'm sure they'll have cameras, you know, that'll analyze things other than, you know, kind of matching up radar, LIDAR, visual cameras and everything else to avoid buildups and that kind of thing, uh, perhaps. But uh, when something goes wrong and, you know, we can we can um, list the number of accidents that have occurred in uh, aviation history that it weren't if it weren't for the fact that there were pilots, humans with human brains on board the aircraft, they would have been total losses. And they always throw out this figure. Uh, I don't know if it's in this article or not about you know, the percentage of accidents that are caused by human error. And it is very high. It's like 80, 90 percent, I believe, at least. Uh, yeah, but that's an easy statistic because as uh, the technology has improved, uh, the reliability of aircraft, the only factor left is human factors, isn't it, Jeff? And actually, the number of uh, crashes hasn't really changed over the years. It's just the proportion attributed. Yeah, the accidents have actually gone down. And but the yeah. uh, as you said, the human factors continues to be a huge portion um, as for exactly what Nick stated, advances in technology and everything else. But the thing that nobody ever mentions is the fact, well, what about the percentage of flights out there that could have been complete disasters if not for the fact that the pilots kept the airplane flying and safe? There's no, Absolutely. there's no way you can get a statistic on that because we don't, it's not like, you know, every flight we come down and we write up, okay, this is what happened and this is what we did to keep it from crashing. We just don't do that. Well, it's, it's, it's not sensational enough. I mean, you, 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 you can't have a, a show about, you know, really can't. I mean, I guess wings was kind of a show about flying, but very few shows about flying because it's, you know, most of the time our job is, is pure boredom punctuated by a few moments of terror. So, and in, in, in our job is that the few moments of terror that we get to, you know, that we get to experience, uh, experience. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, we do our damnedest to make sure nothing ever happens, and that's usually the case. So, you know, we we are just uh, really good at what we do, and there's never going to be a statistic on that. You know, it's it's. You know, if Dr. Steph was here, you know, she could tell you the same thing in the medical field, probably. I mean, you hear about all these, uh, you never hear about, okay, well, this guy had an appendectomy, and, you know, the doctor's done 25,000 of them, never had a problem, you know, and the, and the next thing you know, one patient gets gets sick, and then all of a sudden his, his name splashed all over the news. You know, the, the freak doctor is not able to. So, you know, that's that's the thing. They, the news media, the news outlet, they always want something that's sensational, that's going to bring people's attention. And it's all like, oh, my God. I mean, you watch, you watch, you know, afternoon news on any local TV. They're not talking about, you know, the flower fund that, you know, people put together to honor people that, you know, you, they're always talking about, well, this person got shot, this person got robbed, you know, this carjacking, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, th that's what the news media does. Well, just to name one. There's some great comments. No, so, sorry, Jeff Carroll. Oh, there's some great comments following this article, though. Uh, in uh, one of the, one of which is, uh, um, how much would be saved if the management were substitute by artificial intelligence, <laughs> which I thought was a great respond. And and obviously a guy who's a, a captain who says not one of these engineers, financial analysts, or writers of these articles that push these ideas have ever been in command of an airliner during an unlit sky riddled with seemingly impenetrable 
multiple lines of thunderstorms everywhere. Storms that don't show up on radar and are nearly impossible to discern until the last few seconds. Now throw in the hundreds of other variables that require human intervention. And any professional aviator will tell you this is all a pipe dream to get pet projects of said engineers off the ground, funding as it were. It won't happen. Lives are still too important. Uh, ever had your laptop freeze up? Ever had an app crash? No matter how much redundancy an aerospace engineer builds into these processes, stuff happens, things break. That's where the professional aviators come in. Very well written yes, reply. Yes, very well. And just to name like one instance, uh, you know, the uh, Air France, um, uh, no, why can't I think of the name of it, uh, the, uh, the number, um, the uh, uh, crash of the Airbus A330 over the Atlantic Ocean, you know, when the uh, pedo tubes uh, got um, clogged up for under a minute, but uh, it was an inappropriate response by one of the pilots uh, at the controls, and that ended up uh, killing uh, several hundred people. Um, perfectly good airplane, except for that first, you know, just under a minute. And But there were, after that incident, actually before it, uh, there were several instances of the same thing occurring with ice crystal icing, clogging up the pitot tubes, but the crews doing the right thing, knowing instinctively, you know, what your, you know, your pitch picture is going to look like, your power setting, just leave it where it is, just hold it where it is, and then everything will come back and everything will be fine. Several of those instances have, have occurred, but, you know, they don't make it into the statistics. So the only statistic that we remember is this huge tragedy and uh, a massive loss of life and human error and not you know, we never hear about the or hardly ever hear about the fact that humans saved, you know, hundreds of, well, probably thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives um, uh, on a year to year basis. So, again, as you can tell from our point of view here as airline pilots, this is not and it's not just because we are concerned about losing our jobs, because obviously this is not going to occur in my career, um, you know, Captain so not in not in Captain Nix. He's got a couple <laughs> years remaining. I have about a little over six years remaining. Dana, what, 14, 15 years? I don't know. Yeah. A little more. Okay, 20, 19. 19. Okay, almost 20. 19. It's not going to occur on, in any of our career life's, uh, lifetimes. Uh, but we're just, and so it's not anything about us per, trying to preserve our paycheck. It's because it just doesn't make sense. It's not going to happen. And you might see some, you know, cargo uh, carriers adopting this technology. But again, they're carrying around boxes and, you know, those things can be replaced, but lives cannot. And uh, you're never going to see, you know, mark my words years from now, if you're listening to this, do you have airplanes flying around with passengers, you know, comp- without a human there to take over in case you know, something goes wrong? You know, I doubt it. I mean, they can't even make it work with automobiles and that's a 2D yep. environment. I mean, ours is infinitely more complex. Right. You know, what I do see, Jeff, and I th- we, we've talked about this before, um, in the future, I do see where the automation will be in, in place where you'll, instead of having two pilots, you'll have one pilot. And then, and, you know, maybe a, 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 a central location where you have a backup to that pilot in, in the form of, you know, a, a drone pilot that could actually take over the aircraft if all else fails. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, I, I see I see something like that. You know, I know that's a little bit sci-fi and probably, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road. Uh, yeah, but I absolutely agree with both of you guys. This is not going to it's not going to change today, tomorrow or any time in the near future because, uh, you know, it, 
it, it doesn't make sense to put human lives up there without, uh, would be, you know, I think the first that might actually go to it would, you know, would, would be a military app yeah. application. Um, well, even but I don't Dr. Dan that. makes a good point in the chat room. Even the Starship Enterprise had people at its controls. That's true. <laughs> yes, very nice. And if a, if a military aircraft crashes, uh, most of the time uh, the guys, uh, you know, will eject. And if it doesn't have passengers because it's a military airplane, then no one even bothers to mention it. Yeah, but when you know, but when I'm when I'm talking military applications, I mean I know we have drones flying around with with missiles on them and and sort of doing surveillance, but I'm talking more like a cargo cargo uh, operation. And let me say that properly so people understand cargo. Oh, cargo. that's what you're saying, cargo. cargo. Okay, yes, you know that type of an application is what I'm thinking about when I mention military, where you okay. know they might yeah, go well, down that a that kind of yeah. makes more sense. Yeah. yeah, down to maybe one one or two crew members and and you know have drone replacement and, and the automation to be you know able to back it all up i i see that in the f- probably more fu- near future for military application because usually it's the military applications that come out with stuff yeah. first anyways i mean you know after world war you know it's during world wars you know that leap leaps and, and bounds and so um, i think uh, that that would be far more realistic yeah. well anyway Hopefully that'll be put to bed until the next slow news cycle when somebody comes up with this cockamamie idea again. Oh, yeah. And anyone who thinks that it's an Airbus search, then it says here Boeing reportedly is getting ready to test pilotless technology yep, next yep, year. Yep, yep. Yeah, because of this pilot shortage. So we caused this pilot shortage. Uh, and now what are we going to do? We're going to get rid of pilots. That'll fix it. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Nope, it won't. Yep. No problem. Okay. Uh, just an update on that uh, Air Canada um, near miss, uh, San Francisco International uh, last month. Um, the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration and Air Canada. Okay, this is actually from, um, it's an editorial in the East Bay Times. And uh, they had some pretty harsh words for a couple of different um, entities. One, the FAA, and the other, Air Canada. Um they, in this editorial, say both of them, the uh, FAA and Air Canada, hindered the investigation of last month's near catastrophe as a result uh, by dragging their feet in the aftermath. As a result, key evidence from the cockpit voice recorder was erased and the pilots were never tested for drugs or alcohol. It's a bureaucratic cover up that conveniently protects the federal agency and the airline involved. And then uh, but of course, they do talk about the fact here that Technically, this was not an accident and it, there was no requirement to, you know, ground the airplane, pull the uh, the uh, flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder tapes and to have the pilots tested because there was no I mean, it was a it was a close call, but there was no accident. And this uh, editorial basically is saying, uh, well, then there should be some kind of provision in there for a situation like this for that to take place so that we can understand exactly what happened. So now we don't have the cockpit voice recorder. We don't know what the conversation was going on in the cockpit when they were mistaking the taxiway for a runway, et cetera. Um, so, um, you know, the, the editorial writer makes some good points here. We'll put a link to this in the, uh, in the uh, show notes, but Jim Hall, former NTSB chairman, uh, said that uh, re- these reporting guidelines should be addressed in the investigation. Uh, this was probably the most significant near miss we've had in this decade. 
He said, I think splitting hairs on this issue uh, on an incident of this significance is a disservice to safety. So, yeah, I, I don't think any of us realized just how low the aircraft had gone, mm-hmm. Jeff, to be fair. So perhaps they didn't think it was quite as serious. It was. But when you realize that the aircraft bottomed out at 59 feet and the uh, Philippine Airlines A340, they uh, flew over, has a fin that goes up to uh, 56 feet. Uh, that's a three foot miss distance. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that was a close call. And, and Liz. Please, uh, it just happens that <laughs> this this airline is uh, from your country, and but you shouldn't feel bad about this because it could have been any airline that this happened in. Well, they're all they're all uh, going to try yeah. hide uh, anything they can, Liz. Don't worry, uh, they're yeah. all the same. Yeah, it just so happened in this case it was Air Canada. So, isn't this the same same country that blamed Airbus of having an airplane fly yeah, into the ground? That's true. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm just I'm just saying the obvious here. Yeah. No, I, I you know honestly I love Canada. I mean, it, it, Ooh. <laughs> well, yeah, to be fair, I've I've uh, I've got a sister-in-law who works for them, and uh, she loved Canadian that the company that was taken over by Air Canada, and she said it was just a, such a most awful thing when Air Canada took them over they've got a completely different attitude towards the company well then liz i changed my mind i think that you should feel personal shame every time we talk about this incident (laughs) (laughs) poor liz that's so unfair okay don't send him any more ipa liz uh let's move on then um the snpl i've never heard of this organization but apparently it's a um it's it's the pilots union for french pilots of the British low-cost carrier EasyJet. I'm not sure. Nowhere in this article does it say what SNPL stands for. And if they did, I probably couldn't pronounce it anyway. So thank you very much for that. This is from Aerotime, A-E-R-O Time uh, Aviation News. French pilots of the British LCC EasyJet blame the company for their ambitions to maximize the number of flights during summer season, which according to them causes delays and cancellations and potentially puts passengers at risk. They sent an open letter addressed to the founder of EasyJet, uh, the, let's see, Stelios Haji Iwan Luin. I don't know. How do you pronounce that? Anybody want to take a crack at that? I, I just say Stelios. Stelios. Everyone calls okay. him Stelios. I, I understand why. So we don't try and do <laughs> I can't the other bit. <laughs> uh, anyway, signed by the French pilots of the airline affiliated with the pilot union SMPL, the flight program of the airline is called Unrealistic and Endangering the Safety of Passengers. As it can be understood from the letter, the desire to maximize profits in the summer period leads to a schedule that the company is unable to follow. According to SNPL, the airline canceled 541 flights in July, which is 8.9% more than a year earlier. Uh, At the end of July, an employee of Nice Airport got in a fight with an EasyJet passenger when he tried to find out the reasons for the delay of a flight from Nice to Luton. Over the past 12 months, EasyJet has transported. Anyway, so it has the... uh, it has the body of the the text from the letter that was sent to Stelios and um, and their concern that uh, the, the very uh, unattainable uh, schedule that they have going on uh, is just not sustainable and uh, they're very concerned with uh, safety and uh, so I'm not sure where that's going to go but 
Uh, it's, they're not the first union to have complained, and the time to actually complain, Jeff, was uh, when the European Union were bashing out the new EASA rules, when they basically bought all the flight uh, limitation rules of uh, the flight time limitation rules of all the various European countries and amalgamated them into EASA. And uh, I don't remember seeing uh, the SNPL. I may be doing them a disservice. I don't remember seeing them making a big show uh, and uh, lobbying all the MPs in uh, in the European Parliament. I know my uh, union did, Balpa. They made a very big show and tried to uh, get them changed. Uh, but, uh, you know, unless every pilot union had done the same, we, you know, we ended up with a situation where the rules are considerably more relaxed than the UK ones were for sure. Uh, so um, this is a bit like closing uh, the uh, stable door after the horse has bolted, I'm afraid. It's all very well whinging now, but you should have done something a couple of years ago, old chap. Too much, too little, too late. Right, so I think so. I, 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 I took the time to look up what SNPL is, by the way. Syndicat National des Pilates de Lingue. Ah, very well. Syndicat National des Pilates de Lingue. I'm well educated okay. now. Um, basically, Dr. Dan says it's like the equivalent of our ALPA. So, anyway, um, so just thought I'd throw that in there. I thought that was interesting. That was something that came out just uh, yesterday, I believe, or the day before, August 15th. Yeah. All right. And you know what? Let's. You want to try something? Um, two of our APG community members, before we move on to the feedback, um, have uh, been experimenting with um, a, a, an idea, a concept. Uh, I think they're calling it APG Jeopardy. Are you guys a uh, game? You want to um, get it? Game? You want to? Do I get a prize? Uh, no prizes. Oh. Do, I, do I get a free beer? Um, that would be a prize. Free laptop. Free laptop because <laughs> I tell you what, I'll I'll uh, I'll buy the beer for whoever uh, wins this game. Okay. Cool, cool. Okay, so right now it's just going to be two contestants, um, First Officer slash Captain Dana and Captain Nick. And I'm going to see if I can share my screen here. Of course, every time I do this, it ends up killing my camera, but I'm going to do it anyway. So let me see here. My mic will not stay up. (laughs) Well, (laughs) let me think, uh, where is that... Sounds like That's a personal problem. <laughs> you better be fast on that mute button is all I can say. I know. I keep hearing all kinds of racket in the background, all kinds of noises from from you, Dana. Oh, uh, Andy says this shouldn't be Jeopardy. This should be Jeopardy. Jeopardy. Thank you. Good idea, Andy. This is Jeopardy. All right. So are you seeing the um, are you seeing that on the uh, screen there? Yeah. Okay. Um, again, this is uh, oh, I said two APG crew uh, community members, uh, James Balch, that's Balch, James Balch, and Micah uh, came up with this. And uh, let's see here. I'm going to try to find some kind of a sound effect to play. Let's see. Let's try this. This is Jeopardy! <laughs> All right, our contestants, Dana and Nick. And you'll see the board. Commercial plane types, RIP airlines, call signs, name that aviation movie, and military aircraft names and numbers. 
And that's Nick's specialty. Okay, right there. let's see. So we did uh, before we started play. We uh, drew straws and determined that Dana would start first. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. Hey, you don't remember that? Hey, wait. I thought, I thought it was I thought it was age before beauty. Oh, <laughs> uh, whatever. So, uh, Dana, looking at the board here, where do you want to start? Oh, let's go call, call signs, signs for hundred dollars. Hundred dollars. Here we go. Republic. What's their call sign? Oh my God, <laughs> I hear it all the time too. Um, I give up. Okay, um, Captain. Uh, Nick. Do I get to guess at this one? Yes. Uh, they're called uh, Slam Dunk. Okay, both <laughs> of you are incorrect. I wish there was a way for me to. I think I don't know if it actually subtracts money or not. Uh, but the correct response is Brickyard. 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 Yeah. Brickyard. Brickyard. <laughs> okay. I know so that I, too. That's the sad part. All right. Uh, so, Captain Nick, uh, let's go have you uh, choose uh, the next Name question. that aviation movie for $300. All right. 1986 film featuring planes and volleyball. Oh, I get it. I get it. Nope. Top Gun. Yeah. Top Gun. Okay. Yeah, let's see. You're going to say that. Bucks. That's uh, up, Dana. <laughs> there we go. I don't know why it's saying negative 300. Negative 600. Wait a minute. This is, I don't know. Somebody keep track in the in the chat room. So Nick has 300. For some reason, this uh, this thing is not working. <laughs> okay. Continue. We should have done the rehearsal on this. Um, <laughs> Captain Nick, you have the correct last answer. So go ahead and continue. Okay. I'll go name that aviation movie for $400. Okay. 1997 film featuring Nicolas Cage. Uh that would be oh god damn it! I know I know the movie. <gasps> How long do I get? Uh, it's something to do with uh, flying prisoners around. Oh, I can't I can't remember the name. Okay, uh, Dana, you have an idea? Uh, yeah, it's uh, Air 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 America. No, it's not. Uh, uh, what is? Well, Air America. I can't remember it. Nope. <laughs> Con Air. Con Air, that's it. Okay. Um, but you didn't, you know what? Uh, we're, what we need here, and it's something that uh, James was concerned about, you know, trying to get some kind of a buzzer system in here. This is the first time we're playing this, so, uh, you know, we're, we're trying, but we're, we're going to have to work the Con bugs Air. out. But uh, yeah. now I understand how to correctly um, tabulate the score. I didn't realize that there was a difference between the check mark and the Did X I mark under Team 1 and Team 2. Um, yeah, you know what we're going to do? I'm going to. Um, Let's see. I'm trying to get this uh, back to zero so that it's fair. I've still got $200. Make sure I've still got two hundred, at least $200. Okay, $200 bucks we are going to give you, and I don't know if Dana's gotten one right yet. Not yet. Okay. I'm terrible at these games. Let's see. Uh, Captain Nick, uh, your, your move. I'm still going for aviation movies. I'll try the $500 one. Okay, here we go. Oh, it's a daily double. How much would you like to wager? I would like to wager everything. Everything. Oh, wow. Okay, 200 <laughs> Because, you know, it's not your money anyway, right? Um, <laughs> 1980 film featuring a former basketball legend. Uh, that'll be uh, Airplane. Airplane the movie, yes. Right. Yeah! Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> That's an easy You should one. have wagered more than $200 because you, it was I the had. five. Oh, I know, but you could have... 
I think, uh, well, Did I borrowed some off you, Jeff. Yeah, never mind. Okay, you're right. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, Captain Nick, it's still your turn. Okay, uh, I, I'll try something different. Let's go with uh, $300 uh, military aircraft names and numbers. All right, $300. This is American stuff. McDonnell Douglas Phantom II, also known as? The F4. F4. Yeah. F4. You are yes, correct, sir. I love this game. This is so good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You're still your turn, Nick. All right. Let's crank it up to $400 for military aircraft. Okay. And then I guess we should, you know, Dana, if you know the answer, then like make some kind of a noise like a ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Okay. I knew the answer in the last one. It just didn't get, I thought he got the so, first. Yeah. See, I, I'm doing this all wrong. Sorry, James. <laughs> Not its official name, but known to its crew and pilots as the Viper. Oh, interesting. The Viper. The Viper. Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, Because you don't... I'll go with the uh, A4. Uh, I have no idea. Correct response, F-16. It's actually the Fighting Falcon is the real name of the F-16. Yeah, that's the Fighting Falcon. I would call it the Texas Lawn Dart. (laughs) <laughs> that's also uh, another name for it uh okay let's just do one more and then we can move on with the uh feedback um commercial how, plane types 500 okay here we go who is the father of the 747 who is the f- donald duck donald duck is incorrect <laughs> <laughs> so nick loses 500 uh, boeing Wrong. Uh, correct response. Joe Sutter. Yeah, he is the. Uh, I just didn't want to admit to it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, a lot. You know, we'll, we'll return to the game um, on a future episode because there are a lot more questions and answers to reveal. And uh, I kind of I apologize for screwing it up. Oh, <laughs> now I understand how job, the thing yeah. works. I'm apologizing for not knowing the answers. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. We're not going to hold it against you, Thank God, especially uh, Republic. I mean, I hear that call sign all the time. I know it's <laughs> well, we have some more call signs uh, behind those squares we can uh, tackle on the next show. So thank God Miami Rick isn't here. He had to swipe the floor with us. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Tony, like says, back in the 30s. Tony says in the chat room, you guys suck. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we know we do. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> I, I agree. Thank you. Thank you for the compliment. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Let's see. Let's uh, move on with <laughs> the best part of the show, of course, which means your feedback. Captain. Incoming message. All right. Let's start off with um, Richard. He wrote in um, back in June. Really enjoyed Captain Nick's latest episode of Plain Tales in episode 277. Yet another high point of the show. Not sure if you're aware, but there are several modern and ongoing connections between the famous, or he put in parentheses, infamous R101 from the story and a modern hybrid airship the Air Lander. The R101 was built in the enormous Hangar 1 at Cardington, which until recently was a, in a very poor state of repair. With the Air Lander project in the offing, the Hangar was fully restored between 2012 and 2015, 
There was no other hangar big enough for the Airlander, although if you look at pictures of it in the hangar, it actually appears fairly small, which really reinforces quite how huge the R-101 actually was. There's also another link between the stories and, in a way, APG, with its collection of captains. You may well have heard of Bruce Dickinson, the iconic frontman of British metal group Iron Maiden. When not touring the world with the band, Bruce finds time to run his own commercial aviation company in Cardiff and also an active B-747 training captain, not to mention the owner and pilot of a replica World War I Fokker DR-1 triplane, a type reputed to be even older than the Mad Dog. What? Older than the Mad Dog? They can't. I want to see. I want to see proof on that. I doubt it. Yeah, the original Mad Dog actually had three wings too, but they uh, figured out a way to do. They all fell off. (laughs) That's probably true. Uh, Bruce is extremely keen on the Airlander project to the extent of investing in it and plans several epic trips when its flight test when it starts their flight testing. Uh, Recently resumed following damage from a mooring uh, accident is completed. He sees it as an ideal floating work platform. One idea being a fully equipped hospital that could drop to or drop into remote places in Africa, for example, work for several days and then move on to the next place it's required. There's plenty to be found on the web about this aircraft and its progress, so it looks like the airships may be rising once again from that giant womb at Cardington. Am I saying that right, Cardington? Okay. Uh, Let's see. For a musical version of the R101 disaster story so eloquently related by Captain Nick, I can highly recommend Bruce Dickinson's epic and fairly haunting Empire of the Clouds. As a fan of his music, I was also lucky to be flown by him on a special 737 trip to Paris. The intention was for him to take us by road to the actual site of the R101 mooring post where the disaster happened and where the remains of several of the crew were buried. But on that day, there were various ATC issues, which meant there was no spare or time spare to do so. Thanks for an excellent show. Somehow, it still keeps managing to get better each week. Richard Adams. Well, thanks to people like you, Richard. Absolutely. uh, You know, I'd like to see that thing, which is being nicknamed the flying bum. Um, I'd like to see a stage uh, being suspended from below it. And I'd like to see it flying around the countryside with Iron Maiden on the stage hanging below the airship, playing heavy metal as they drift around the countryside. Wouldn't that be cool? That would be cool. And, and they could be playing, what was the song that he mentioned here? The um, Empire of the Clouds? They could be. Yeah. There you go. That would be cool. All right. I tried well, to get that on, uh, on, on my uh, Amazon Music. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever song. heard that. Um, uh, one of you, uh, let's see. Let me do a quick search here. Uh, Let's see. I'm going to say Google Play since I have. No, I'm not going to do that because it's going to be. They're going to flag me and and never mind. Let's don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Forget it. You can look it up yourself, dear listener, and listen to it, which we'll probably all do after the show. Uh, This one next. uh, This is specifically to Dana. I fly for Acme Junior. I was deviating weather to Atlanta from the west on July 17th. I'm pretty sure I heard your indistinguishable voice, Dana. There's I don't have an. Wait a minute, time out. I don't have an indistinguishable voice. No, no you sound like everybody. I sound like just like everybody else. Yes, sure. there's no mistaking that accent. Ha ha. Feels good you to hear another. Sound like me. <laughs> feels good to hear another APG or successfully fighting the weather into Atlanta. Clear skies, my friend. By the way, I am based in Atlanta. Would love to meet up with you and Jeff or any other APGers for a meetup in Atlanta. 
I'm very I'm a very quick 50 minute commute away. Y'all name the time schedule permitting and I'll be there. Clear skies, fellas. And then again, that was from Justin. Yeah, we need to have another Atlanta meet up sometime soon there. Yeah, I haven't had an Atlanta trip for ages. Uh, I was going to ask you, Nick. One. Well, I don't have one uh, uh, next in September. Uh, I'm, and I'm on standby in uh, October, so I don't know when I'll be. I mean, I could get called out for one. You never know. Okay. I, I, the other day I was landing. I don't know where I was coming in from. doesn't matter. Uh, but uh, right behind us was uh, 103 uh, Mike or something like What do you guys use the uh, alphabetic um, additions? To because the- at some point on that route, there will be an aircraft with a similar call sign okay. uh, so as to distinguish it. Okay. There will be another 103 somewhere. I see. Okay. Um, anyway, that was the, uh, the 340-600 uh, that you love flying uh, landed behind us, and I was able to you know pull off and watch the – landing of that thing very very nice landing and a beautiful airplane really is it's, it's a nicely proportioned airplane I, yeah i think they got I, it right i think one. the shorter versions of the uh, 340 are not that attractive no no i i agree and it's a, it's a bit like the 380 i think the 380 would have looked lovely if they'd ever got around to building a stretched one because it looks like a little d- short dumpy thing but, yeah, uh, I think if you add another 50 meters to it, it'd look quite nice. Yeah, maybe move the cockpit up to the upper deck. Yeah, yeah no, that, that cockpit's kind of yeah. lost. And mm-hmm. it, yeah, but like, if you if you notice the uh, the sort of current design um, mm-hmm. tend, tendency is to have a, a the point of the nose low. The both both the seven eight and the three fifty have very similar designs. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to change that anytime soon. Yeah. Well, Justin, keep listening and uh, sending feedback. And uh, if we do have a an Atlanta meetup in the future, we'll uh, certainly uh, mention it on the show for sure. Also, uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. Slack. Okay. It's nice to be heard. It is nice to be heard, isn't it? Um, not so much on the show, yeah. but you know, on, at least on, on the radio. And it's nice to be not only heard, but listened to as well yeah no kidding I'm, I'm all, <laughs> of course i'm only kidding as always <laughs> i'm not okay uh tom oh, ow. not no it wasn't ow. pointed at you i was it was pointed at me in my own personal life <laughs> okay <laughs> had nothing to do with you at all dana um i was not trying to get a laugh at your expense for sure really he still thinks i'm joking but i'm not um <laughs> tom continues or tom sent uh sent us an email and uh, let's see, Tom Ling. Hi, guys, and the lovely Dr. Steph. I'm a window cleaner at Lincolnshire, England, and have my headphones in most of the time at work. I enjoy listening to all the great aviation podcasts and genuinely look forward to each of yours. I should let Nick finish reading this because obviously if he's um, in Lincolnshire, England, he's prob- he probably has a nice English accent. Uh, he probably does. He's probably a very nice bloke. Uh, He says, I have one main question for Captain Nick. Please keep with me. I sometimes work near RF Collingsby and sneak off for a while to watch the aircraft. It's driving my nuts. Why? No, I think it's supposed to be driving me nuts, old chap. (laughs) We don't want to hear. We really don't want to hear about your nuts. Steph would be falling on the floor at the moment if she was on. It's driving me nuts why I can't work out an engine issue. As far as I know, the hottest part of a turbine, uh, I guess, lies, of a turbine. Turbine's life. 
life, yeah, is at the start when the fuel is pumped, but the airflow is fairly low. Yeah, the the temperature does get up a bit during the start cycle. Um, once the engine reaches idle temps, cool, and at half throttle it's even cooler. Um, not necessarily. The temperature actually rises. You've got to make more more heat to generate more power. So the temperature definitely comes up as you throttle the engine up. And the actual hottest temperatures are going to be when you're at full power. Um, so, Captain Nick, uh, and I understand you have flown this aircraft. We're talking about the tornado here. Why, oh, why does the tornado sit at the end of the runway one full cold power for sometimes up to 20, 30 seconds uh, before full reheat is engaged and it lumbers down the runway? I know that they can take off uh, without, but it's a heavy old girl, yeah. Cannot work out why they sit at the engine in full, sorry, sit at the end in full cold power. Uh, they must be up to temperature and the engine should settle after a couple of seconds of full cold power, question mark. Um, so the answer to that is, uh, no, they're not necessarily um, uh, at the right temperature. And the other thing is that... Um, on those uh, engines, you need to uh, just note down, once the you've put full military power in, i.e. cold power, um, once the temperatures and the and it's the uh, TBT on, on these engines uh, has stabilized and the RPM has stabilized, the navigator makes a note of the numbers so that uh, he can tell the uh, engineers after landing as part of an engine monitoring uh, system. Uh, because uh, military aircraft don't often record these things themselves. So um, that's part of it. Uh, and the other might be that uh, when you get up to full power, uh, you the TBT reaches its limit, and then the engine trims back the RPM to maintain that. So you need to make sure that trim is working so you know over temperature the engine. And uh, it shouldn't take that long, 20 30 seconds. Um, but perhaps the old uh, mud movers, they, they, these are ground attack ones, so uh, they're, they're full of bomber pukes. Um, so, uh, you know, they're, they're just a bit slow at doing it. <laughs> you have to forgive them. They're not fighter pilots. Okay. Uh, so that uh, I, I have actually posed that question on my secret tornado forum, and that's the answer they came up with because hmm. I couldn't remember ever doing that personally. It might be a um, ground attack version one. Their engines are different to the air defense ones, which have more powerful engines, and I suspect they're probably more flexible. Now the airline question. Uh, are there any turbofan run-up limitations? Uh, well, other than temperature and RPM, really, that's it, um, and vibration, I guess. I, uh, I can hear... Um, then power up slowly and let it settle and give it full power. Yeah, that's that's really an asymmetric problem. Uh, if you've got an engine out, I mean, Jeff won't suffer this too much because his engines are pretty close to the fuselage, so he doesn't have a huge asymmetric problem. But on an aircraft with the engines out on the wings, uh, if you get one that um, accelerates faster than the other, you can get quite a, a large um, a yawing moment, and the airplane might start to turn off the runway as you're starting to accelerate until, of course, the other engine gets up to the same power because obviously if you get a lot of power on one side, it's going to turn the airplane. Um, so we advance the engines up to a moderate setting to make sure they're right before we advance them then to the takeoff power 
and uh, they accelerate that last bit um, fairly easily and together. So that's the reason for that. So just in case one hangs at idle power. And I've, it's never happened to me for real, but I've had that fault in the simulator. And I tell you, if you don't pick it up very quick, you're straight off the runway. Uh, it's, it's, that, it's that dramatic. Wow. Uh, so thank you all for your podcast and the enjoyment I've had. Other than that, you're very welcome. And I look forward to sending him some voice feedback. Yeah, and we'd like some pictures. Being a window cleaner, I suspect you have lots of interesting things to report to us. So we'd like to know all about your job as well. Family show. Family show. Family show. Oh, okay. Just to me then. <laughs> <laughs> Dana, no, you're thanks gonna... very much indeed, Thomas, for that. That's much appreciated. Dana, you were going to say something? No. Oh, okay. No. Uh, and Captain Nick, we actually do the same thing. Um, even though the, you're correct that the uh, the engines on our jet are more are closer to the center line, uh, we, we still do have a little bit of asymmetric um, things to worry about. Um, we and, call it a bleeding. We call it bleeding problem. Yeah, um, but uh, it's exactly the same thing you're talking about. We want to make sure, and you know, we always put it up to us that so we basically stand the throttles. You know, twelve o'clock. You know, straight up and down. That's usually you know, about where uh, the uh, engines will spool up and stabilize enough. And then once you move it beyond that point, um, the uh, when the engines accelerate, uh, they'll they'll accelerate pretty closely, <laughs> like at the same. But uh, we've been using a lot of um, aftermarket uh, engines in the last year or two because they're getting harder and harder to find those old JT8D uh, model engines that we're using on the uh, on the Mad Dog. And uh, almost every logbook you open up, it says, um, these engines are different. The bleed schedules are different. So, you know, they're going to be not quite the same. Be careful. And so Dana and I are used to the fact that uh, these things don't spool up uh, evenly anymore. I mean, when they ever do, it's a, it's a kind of a surprise. Uh, but uh, you want to definitely, um, you know, you're asking about the, uh, the N1. Um, we actually are looking at EPR settings and on the uh, 88 we're looking for 1.4 exhaust pressure ratio on the engines before we um, basically engage the auto throttle system and that kind of pushes them up to the uh, takeoff power position uh, on the uh, md90 it's 1.2 epr i'm not sure exactly how that equates to uh, to the uh, n1 settings but uh, i would imagine they're probably more than 50 percent probably 60 70 percent dana what would you think it's an 88 percent uh, with a flex 90 for a normal 92 for max power. that's actually at full power i mean the uh, the takeoff power setting but i'm saying that the, yeah. the power setting prior to the final advancing i don't know but oh it's it's yeah it's about it's about 70 yeah 70 percent. it's interesting with what nick says you know it's easy uh one of the uh one or more of those engines on one side accelerate um, more rapidly than the other side. Um, uh, the reason why I say it's funny is because sometimes you'll be taking the runway. Have you guys ever seen the um, the tire uh, marks on the runway? Sometimes you'll see this, some tires kind of are like marks laid on the uh, runway surface and they start going straight and they go off to the side and then back to the center line. I don't know if you've ever seen that or not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, wow, seen what that. happened there? <laughs> that must have been a fun ride. Anyway. Yeah. That's probably a result of, um, you know, uh, not uh, synchronized engine acceleration. Well, and, 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 and that's uh, kind of interesting, uh, you know, a little tidbit about our airplane. Um, the uh, As far as I know, there's a worldwide shortage on the JT-AD. They're no longer being manufactured. So that's why we're having to kind of pilfer from other 
other places mm-hmm. and the, the it's becoming even more a bigger issue um with the reversers because reverses really are not coming out evenly at all now um most of the time you pull them up and you know jeff you've been flying the airplane a long time i've been flying the airplane a long time and you know when you pull the reverse uh, reverses out you, you know about what to pull to get the, the knobs up into the position to to get the approximate 1.3 that we're looking for and you pull it out and next thing you know you get about 2.0 you put on one side and zero you know 1.0 on the other side it's it's an asymmetric thrust so you know it's an interest, interesting topic to be talking about uh, you know spool up times and, and and so forth but reverse is also you know as much of a, a problem as nick is talking about with his airplane if you're on a slippery runway or a wet runway with our airplane uh, it's as much of a problem uh, with the reverse thrust if you do not recognize it fast enough it can pull you off the runway as as was proven uh, up in uh, some New York airport close to the water. Yes. There was an incident with, uh, yeah, rudder blanking and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Slippery runways. By by very experienced crew members, mind you. Mm-hmm. So. All right. Well, I think this might be a good time for us to play this week's installment of that uh, favorite amongst everybody, Plane Tales. The old pilot's plane tales, no distant lands. There are no distant lands by flying the clipper, the advert read, and Pan American meant it. It was the 1940s and their fleet of impressively large Boeing 314 clipper flying boats had truly made long-range passenger travel a reality. It was a giant of an aircraft, weighing 40 tons, and with a wingspan of over 150 feet, three-quarters of that of a 747. It had a crew of ten, two pilots, a radio operator, a navigator, and a flight engineer, with five cabin crew to look after the passengers, who travelled in considerable comfort. The maximum number they carried was 72, although in sleeper configuration that was reduced to 40. There were seven beautifully appointed compartments for the passengers, which included a 14-seat dining room, a lounge, and even a private honeymoon suite near the tail. The four right twin cyclone engines were the first in civil use to use 100-octane fuel, and they would carry what was then the largest aircraft in the world, an impressive 3,000 nautical miles. A ticket aboard such an aircraft wasn't cheap. You could have crossed the Atlantic at half the price on Concorde, but the pride of the fleet could take you to such exotic places as Hawaii, South America, the West Indies, Australasia, and such. And Pan Am made as much from carrying mail as they did from their passengers. To become a captain on such an aircraft, one had to be a cut above the rest, as Pan Am only had nine clippers. With the limited resources available in the remote corners of the world, the skipper had little or no backup and relied entirely on his own skills and that of his crew to complete a round trip that might take days. Such a captain was Bob Ford. Despite the war in Europe, it was business as usual for him as he pushed up the throttles on the California Clipper, and with the sea spray glistening on the sides of the aircraft, he climbed out of San Francisco into the evening sky, bound for Pearl Harbor. The next day was the 3rd of December, 
and Ford was out on the waves again, but this time surfing on the beautiful beaches of Honolulu, whilst his crew played volleyball. After a day of relaxation, they took off again, stopping at Canton Island, Fiji and New Caledonia, bound for New Zealand. It was by now the 7th of December 1941, a date that many know as one that will live in infamy. And as they approached Auckland, the radio operator, Gene Leach, swore out loud. The news of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor came through. The beautiful island that they had left only a few days ago would never be the same again. Bob Ford took the news calmly and asked his radio operator confirmed with the Pan Am station at New Caledonia. When Leach had tuned his set to the right frequency, he heard a message being transmitted on a constant loop. Pearl Harbor attacked, implement, plan, alpha. The crew looked at each other in confusion until the captain pulled an envelope from his jacket pocket that he had been carrying for some weeks and opened it to read. To the captain, PAA flight 6039 and return flight 6040 from the division manager, Pacific Division. Special instructions to avoid hostile military activity. Pan American Airways has agreed to place its fleet of flying boats at the disposal of the military for whatever logistical or tactical purpose they may deem necessary at such times as hostilities break out between the United States forces and the military forces of the Imperial Japanese government. In the event that you are required to open and read these instructions, you may assume that hostilities have already occurred and that the aircraft under your command represents a strategic military resource which must be protected and secured from falling into enemy hands. Captain Ford was ordered to take the California Clipper to the nearest Pan Am base unoccupied by the Japanese, doing everything possible to avoid contact with the enemy. An ex-Navy pilot, Ford discussed with his navigator the best route to take to Auckland and told his radio operator to maintain radio silence. He turned out all the aircraft lights and, finally, took a thirty-eight revolver from his flight bag and strapped it onto his waist. A week later, Ford was to be found yet again in the American consulate in Auckland. The consulate was the only route for messages, and it was in turmoil. However, after visiting it every day since landing, they eventually had a message for him. He quickly absorbed the instructions, which read, Top secret, to Captain Robert Ford, from Chief Flight Operations, Pan American Airways Systems, Chrysler Building, New York. Division plans for November Charlie, 18602. Normal return route cancelled. Proceed as follows. Strip all company markings, registration numbers, and identifiable insignia from exterior surfaces. Proceed westbound, soonest your discretion, to avoid hostilities and deliver your aircraft to Marine Terminal, LaGuardia Field, New York. Good luck. Bob Ford was stunned. In one terse message, he'd been asked to do something that had never been achieved before. In the chaos and turmoil of a world war, he was being asked to fly a commercial aircraft west from New Zealand to the United States. He called his crew together and showed them the message, and the enormity of their task started to hit home. 
When a new route was prepared, there would be months of planning and preparation. The aircraft would be gone over in detail and refueling ships and stations carrying their special 100-octane fuel would be pre-positioned. Most importantly, they would have maps and charts from which to navigate. They had none of these. Ford set about allocating tasks. He dispatched his navigator to the Auckland Library to try and get maps, atlases and textbooks about the countries they were due to fly over, while the rest of his crew set about preparing the aircraft. In the evenings, they pored over the maps that they had found, trying to work out the best route. The first part was an easy decision, even if it had risks. They would make their way to Australia, but flying over it meant a long transit over land with no chance of putting down safely if they had a problem. The clipper could only land on water. After that, there was the difficult decision of either heading directly to Africa or going via Java and India. The direct route was at the limit of their endurance, and if the weather was against them, they would in all likelihood be lost at sea. The other route might allow them to stop at friendly ports, but it would also take them through a war zone. They decided that the long transit direct to Africa was just too risky, so with the prospect of flying through some very unfriendly skies, they continued to get ready with a journey of over 20,000 miles ahead of them. Their preparations were cut drastically short when an urgent message arrived. They needed to head straight to New Caledonia on their way to Australia to evacuate the Pan Am staff and their families there as the island was in danger of attack. Laden with spare parts from the Auckland station and heavy with fuel, they got airborne the next morning. There hadn't been time to finish stripping the paint, so the California Clipper still sported a large stars and stripes painted on the top of her wings, but their long adventure had begun. The evacuation from New Caledonia went well, and they now sat at Gladstone on the east coast of Australia. Not a drop of 100-octane fuel was available. It was the high-performance fuel that gave them their impressive range, and now they would have to fly on automobile petrol. As they flew the long leg over to Darwin, everyone was trying to work their individual problems. The engineers tinkered to get the best balance of fuel mixture, prop RPM and manifold pressure for the low-grade fuel they carried, whilst Ford and his navigator studied possible landing sites at their stops. They would often be landing in unsurveyed waters where their huge aircraft could easily be wrecked on a hidden rock, sandbar or other debris which could rip open the belly of their flying beast. Even the stewards had their problems of just how they were going to feed the crew and their passengers for this long journey. Arriving at Darwin, they found the town in turmoil. There had just been a Japanese air raid and there was an invasion scare, but to top it all, the first freighter full of beer had just arrived and the Australians had taken full advantage of its presence. They had the right fuel, but it had to be ferried out to the aircraft in jerry cans, which was a worryingly slow process as it was poured can by can into the clipper's vast tanks. Tropical rainstorms threatened to contaminate the fuel as it was poured into the open tank inlets, but eventually the job was done in the early hours of the morning. After snatching a few hours of sleep, as the sun rose, they got airborne again. 
The Surabaya in Indonesia, the Dutch Navy were on edge. Japanese fighters and bombers had attacked almost daily, and now there is a report of a large aircraft approaching. Colonel Kernrad scrambled three fighters to intercept. On California Clipper, they watched the fighters bear down on them at speed, knowing that either side in a war might shoot them down out of malice or ignorance. The fighter pilots radioed their report, an unknown flying boat. Kernrad pondered. The safest action was to shoot it down, but then came another call. An American flag is painted on top of the wing. It could be a trick, but Kernrad allowed the aircraft to proceed, with the fighters in escort just in case. After landing, Ford met with the colonel, who told him how lucky he was, as their radio was off and out of service, and the area outside the harbour where their clipper landed was heavily mined. The Dutch did what they could for Ford and his crew, but there was no 100-octane fuel available. Bob Ford knew that running his engines on low-octane fuel meant getting less power, and it would eventually wreck them. They decided to preserve what they could of the good fuel in separate tanks, and only use it for take-off and landings, but they were happy that they had taken on the spare engine parts from Auckland, with the threat to Surabaya, they got airborne as soon as they could for the next 2,500 miles to Trincomalee. Nineteen hours into the flight, they took their last fix, passing over Sumatra using their crude charts. They must now work from dead reckoning throughout the night to find Trincomalee on the island of Sri Lanka. The engines were violently backfiring on the fuel they'd picked up from Surabaya, with the airframe shaking as a result. They couldn't run them richer or they wouldn't reach their destination, but the cylinder heads were way too hot, dangerously close to the red line. It was going to be a close-run thing between destroying the engines and running out of fuel. As the sun rose, there was low cloud below them, and Ford had to descend 300 feet below it just in case they missed the Trincomalee as it came up over the horizon. What's that ahead, somebody asked. A whale? Submarine, Ford yelled. Full rich, full power. And he heaved back on the controls, desperately trying to find the cloud again. As they flashed over the sub, they all saw the rising sun painted on the conning tower and the deck crew swinging guns around in their direction. Reaching the low cloud, it was lit up all around them with flashes and explosions, and they held their breaths until at last they were safely out of range. The little corner of the British Empire that was Trencomalee couldn't have been more welcoming, but their credibility was stretched to the limits when Bob Ford reported the Japanese submarine. However, there was an invitation to a dinner party held by Lady Wavell, the wife of General Archibald Wavell, CNC of the British forces in India. It was Christmas Eve when they departed with their tanks topped up with 100 octane heading for Karachi. However, they hadn't gone more than a few hundred miles before an enormous bang which almost threw Ford out of his seat announced the failure of the number three engine. Back at Trincomalee, they sang Christmas songs and raised a toast to the RAF engineers who worked on the problem, and by the next day they waved goodbye to their new friends. 
Finally in Karachi, both the crew and the aircraft were showing signs of wear. At least they were in a major city where they could relax and enjoy a hot bath. They spent a well-earned day of relaxation, apart from the engineers who needed the downtime to fix a growing list of problems. With everyone in better spirits, they quickly made Bahrain, where yet again they were forced to take on inferior fuel. However, they nursed their clipper safely to Khartoum, where there was a well-equipped RAF presence who sorted them out with charts, fuels and supplies for their final leg to the Pan Am outpost at Leopoldville in the Congo. To get airborne, however, they needed a clear three-mile stretch of the Nile, which took a little finding, but at last they were on their way. It was New Year's Day 1942 when Bob Ford opened up his engines to full power and they raced down the Nile. Easing off the water, they were met with a loud hammering noise as the exhaust stack of the number one engine parted company. They shouted at each other over the din, Can we make it? Apart from the exhaust flames licking out across the wing and the noise, they were flying okay, so with a constant fire watch from the observation dome, they set course. Their problems were far from over, but landing on the River Congo joined them up with a company facility, and from there they could rejoin the Pan Am route structure that would take them on to home. There were still many potential disasters that could overtake them, and nearly did, but they safely made Brazil, and then turned north for New York. It was on the 6th of January, on a cold morning at LaGuardia's airport tower, when the radio unexpectedly crackled into life. LaGuardia Tower, this is Pan American Clipper, November Charlie 18602, inbound from Auckland, New Zealand. Due to arrive, Pan American Marine Terminal, LaGuardia, seven minutes. Over. The controller's jaw dropped. There was no flight expected, and Pan Am didn't fly from New Zealand to New York. Sorry? Pan American Clipper 18602? Let's say again. Confirm your departure point. Over. Captain Bob Ford himself took the radio and replied, I say again. Inbound from Auckland, New Zealand, by way of the long way around. Captain Bob Ford, his crew, and the California Clipper became the first commercial aircraft to fly from New Zealand to New York westbound, but they also became the first to effectively circumnavigate the world. Quite an achievement, but one lost in the news of the war that America had very recently joined. My thanks to Justin Graham for putting me onto the story. Wow. <laughs> what a fascinating story. It's no, awesome. lovely, isn't it? Is that it's a lovely awesome. one. Is there a book written about that or books written about that? I bet there are. Yes, there is. Uh, and I think it's called a uh, very similar name, The Long Way Around, I think it's called. Wow. Um, I didn't go from that. I went, obviously, from uh, a Preceed story, which I found uh, on a blog. Uh, mm-hmm. and, um, obviously, uh, put a little bit of other information that I found elsewhere. But, uh, yeah, I, and the, the lovely thing is that not too many people know that story. So uh, it's it's a real nice one. So I, I, I heard that voice. Uh, it wasn't your voice in the background, I'm thinking. That sounds 
strangely uh, familiar. I, I just thought my American accent was getting oh. a lot better. Isn't, isn't okay. That? And I think maybe you've been hanging around Fred Sampson a little bit too long because it sounded yeah, a lot like Fred. I, I did uh, color Fred and ask him to help me out there because uh, I, 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 I'm not even going to try with a, with a largely American audience. I'm not even going to try to put on an American accent. So, uh, yeah, he helped me out there. And uh, it kind of he's great. Uh, it added a little bit extra to that. An uh, ABG Community Production. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, while I was listening to, because uh, I put a, put it on the uh, speakers here in my studio, I went and got a, another one of those bottles that uh, Sam sent me. Um, this one, New Glarus uh, Brewing Company, and um, I'm, I'm enjoying this IPA. Thank you, Sam. Does it say IIPA? IIPA? Uh, oh, yeah, it does. IIPA. IIPA? What's that? It must be, uh, it tastes like a... Uh, like an imperial or a double IPA, uh, yeah, it's kind of tastes a little bit stronger than normal. But uh, an imperial good. Indian pale ale. I don't know if they, the Indians would be oh, too. Oh, Sam's here. Good, good. Ah, yeah. uh, earlier today, uh, Sam, I mentioned the uh, the gift of the uh, the beer, and uh, it is an imperial. Okay. Thank you, uh, Sam. And uh, hang on, let me reach behind me. That's the gin bottle, Jeff. Yeah, sorry, the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, this is my favorite gin right here. Uh, what's that? Uh, it's Bombay, Bombay Sapphire. Sapphire. Um, I can get some of that from on board. It's pretty cheap. Is it? Well, uh, it's yeah, not we cheap over here in the States. Uh, well, I'll bring you some next time. Oh, awesome. Um, but anyway, this is what I was actually reaching for. The uh, specially brewed uh, by your friend, Phil, the... Uh, uh, let's see, deadheading Imperial Stout. Really, really good. It's been a while since I've had a homebrew, and it was nice to kind of taste that homebrew flavor and uh, a wonderful Imperial Stout. And I love the uh, label. Beautiful job. So, anyway. I'm very generous of you. I wish I'd been part of that. That would have been nice. Oh, I think that Glenn must have had one of those. I guess it was. Everyone's uh, got one set me then. Well, there were only 30-something made, I think. Oh, well, there's, I'm only one bloke. I don't want all 30 of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Main Man Micah says he likes Boodles gin. I've never tried Boodles. I'm sure that it's wonderful. Um, yeah. That, there's an, actually, there's a growing uh, number of uh, sort of uh, craft Boutique gin. gins. Yeah, exactly right. Distillers. Yeah. Quite amazing, isn't it? Uh, for, the one that my wife really likes is Hendrix. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, where that's, that one's made. They, they, they taste quite different, but uh, I, I can't stand the stuff. Uh, yeah, um, I'm afraid it's, it's like drinking um, toilet. No, uh, eau de toilette. Oh, really? How, no. Toilet. How do you know? Oh, you mean like the, the like perfume cologne? Yeah, well, that's what it smells like. I can't get it past my nose. Yeah, I, I was playing a drinking game uh, out in uh, Johannesburg uh, one very late night, and the only thing. Uh, um, I made me sick was uh, uh, gin and hot water. They made me drink gin and hot water. Well, that sounds terrible. <laughs> it is. It's awful. It just just amplifies the aroma, and I and I got it down, but it didn't stay down for very long. Okay. Well, let's um, move on before we all get sick. Yeah. No, <laughs> just just the thought of gin makes me sick. I do not like gin. Okay. Like okay. So, oh well. Um, Sean writes Good in. Bourbon. <laughs> Bourbon, I mean, I can drink drink it, but I don't. It's not something that I go. Yeah, I really like to sit down and. Have. I I tried a, oh. a a nice bourbon in um, Louisville. I figured, you know, when in Rome, 
But then I realized it wasn't in Rome. So I thought, <laughs> when in Louisville, <laughs> go for a good bourbon. And I think it was uh, one of the Maker's Marks uh, um, high, uh, what do you call it, um, special. Was it 46? Yeah, Maker's 46. I think it was. Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah, Maker's 46 is pretty good. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, moving on. We could talk about, this is not uh, the a drinking show. bourbon <laughs> pilot guy <laughs> or whatever, or gin pilot, whatever. Um, let's move on with aviation stuff. This is Sean, and uh, he said, this is your captain speaking. We're diverting to Montreal because the crapper's full. And then <laughs> put a uh, link here to the, uh, uh, it's an Air Canada plane. Sorry, um, Liz. <laughs> oh, poor Liz, they get the hell today, aren't they? <laughs> it's seri- in seriousness, is it really that much further to fly from Montreal to Toronto? It's a one-hour flight between Montreal and and uh, let's see, YYZ, Toronto, for a normally scheduled airline flight. So I'm assuming 30 minutes or so difference at altitude. What would you guys do in a similar situation? I recall Captain Nick saying that he's had issues with fault sensors before. I'm assuming that's the case here. And this is an article from, let me make sure I attribute this correctly, nationalpost.com. Uh, when an airliner has to land, it has to land. At least that was a case of an Air Canada Rouge flight from Athens to Toronto that made an emergency diversion to Montreal recently for a surprising reason. Onboard sensors indicated that all the Boeing 767's toilets were full after much of the 10-hour flight, making them unusable for the final portion of the trip. The flight, carrying 240 passengers, was delayed close to two hours as staff checked out the problem, which turned out to be a false alarm, a glitch with the lavatory system. But... The July 3rd incident highlighted a little-known fact about modern passenger jets. The waste is not jettisoned from on high, threatening those on the ground with falling frozen feces, but kept as extra baggage. Well, I don't know if that's a little-known fact. We all know that. <laughs> no, we don't put it in the baggage either. No. Otherwise, people will get very upset if they, they open their suitcase and yes. come out in it. Consumer... I, I, I think you could actually go ahead and say it is full. It is full of crap. This whole that's another word we can use that. This article is just full of crap, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but to, to his point is it's that a crappy situation. It's a really crappy. Oh, it's just more toilet humor. So his his point or his um, the point of sending this in, I think, was his question regarding why did they divert into uh, Montreal when they could have just or was it the other way around? They uh, yeah. Um, why did they divert to Montreal when they could have gone just a few minutes more to Toronto? Was it really that critical? I don't know. There, there, was, there was shit. There was, there were, I can't use, they were, you, you uh, just shot. did, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I had to stop myself. They were shot out of time. Uh huh. The crap out of time. You know, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's an interesting one because uh, once the toilets sort of get to overflowing point, if they're not flushing anymore, which is what happens when the tanks indicate they're full, uh, it kind of gets a bit disgusting. But, uh, um, you know, oh, geez, that's a tough one. Uh, I, yeah, for, unless you've got someone up there who's making a real fuss and then they, that then becomes an issue because uh, now the, th- the safety of the flight might be threatened by a rebellious uh, number of passengers who just insist on landing right now so they can go to the toilet. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it becomes a nightmare, but uh, yeah, we've, yeah, it, it's difficult. And I, I think I would have probably carried on, but I would have declared an emergency. <laughs> yeah. They declared a pan pan 
<laughs> Believe it or not. No, they really did. It says so in this article anyway. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It doesn't seem, you know, if it was just a sensor and they didn't actually have toilets overflowing. Um, uh, well, yeah, but once this, if it's anything like the Airbus sensor, and I don't think it is because it's a Boeing, but when our sensor goes off, indicating they're full, it shuts the system down. Oh. So you can't actually flush the toilets. Anymore. Well, maybe that's, maybe that is what we, happened here. Okay. We cured the problem because we had a lot of problems uh, 20 odd years ago when we started the, with the aircraft. Uh, we ended up just disabling the sensors. There you go. Well, I don't know. That's a mystery to me. That's never happened to me. Um, but I guess they didn't want to be up to their necks in excrement, I guess. I don't know. No. Well, I thought I thought all the the people on the airplane that do stuff doesn't stink. You know, all those passengers in the back that sometimes have that attitude. Think okay. they're better than everybody else. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, thanks for that contribution. Oh, shut up. <laughs> um, I'm tired. I'm tired. Leave me alone. Okay. Okay. We'll let it pass. Uh, Paul writes in. Oh, no. That wasn't another one. Was that <laughs> it was an unintentional one, actually. We'll let it pass. <laughs> oh, uh, Let's see. This is from Paul. Oh, God. This is from Paul. Your last podcast, which was not our last podcast, uh, but it wasn't that long ago. Mentioned the uh, St. Albans Cross or Albans Cross. Can someone explain how a device honoring a British person is adopted by an American organization like the Civil Air Patrol? Just curious. It seemed a little strange to me. And uh, so I, I, I wasn't sure. So I did a little bit of research about um, St. Alban and St. Albans Cross and the crest that is worn on the blue berets that the Civil Air Patrol uh, cadets wear. And uh, first of all, let's talk about um, St. Alban, uh, who is, I think, um, is it like the, the uh, what do they call that, the, um, the, the, the saint for uh, the UK or one of the, um, he was from somewhere no, in England. He's just known as the first martyr. First martyr of England, of England. okay. He's not actually at all well known. We, we don't okay. recognize him. I'm sure those who... Uh, have knowledge uh, know of him, but okay. it's not one of those general holidays, for example. He was a martyr in medieval times. He was put to death for uh, giving a condemned man his cloak, a man who was willing to give everything, including his life, for his fellow man. This is the same feeling and dedication felt by all Blue Berets, which I guess is the folks that work for the Civil Air Patrol or, or in the uh, Civil Air Patrol. So they liked the what he stood for and what he did with his life. A good example. And... Uh, Anyway, the crest is designed uh, in accordance with uh, the Air Force standard for beret crests using enamel and chrome and brass and the Civil Air Patrol standard for simplicity in design. The crest is in the shape of a shield representing our mission as protectors of human life, our strength in adverse times and our military heritage. The crest design is gold is a gold cross superimposed on a dark blue background. The crest is worn on the beret centered over the left eye. Um, let's see. Uh, I thought there was an interesting thing in here about, oh, here we go. Uh, often you will see pictures of old school berets with a silver St. Albans cross on their berets. This is how that came about. When beret candidates first reported in, they were issued their cross to be worn on the front of their fatigue caps or in earlier years of the program, a French beret that was issued to them. As the encampment progressed, the candidates performed a little ritual. At the end of each day, they would rub the crests on their foreheads. The acid and salt in their sweat would slowly dissolve the cheap gold electroplating on the crests. 
This ritual was used as a measure of how hard you were working to earn your beret. If you worked hard enough, by the end of the by the end of the encampment, your beret crest would be blue and silver. So all the gold was worn away. Uh, this is a coincidence. The St. Albans Cross is also the emblem for the U.S. Air Force Basic Military Training School, the 37th Training Wing at Lackland. The use of the Albans Cross emulates our endeavor to train new professionals to enter our organization and foster the Air Force spirit for future generations. So anyway, I'll uh, put a link to the Wikipedia article regarding uh, St. Alban. Uh, but uh, I think we were talking about the Civil Air Patrol and the, the Blue Berets, and I mentioned that I met uh, a young man wearing that at the uh, at Oshkosh and uh, so that was uh, Paul's response to it and, or actually that was his question about it like what what is the connection there but just because somebody is from a different part of the world doesn't necessarily mean that you can't use that as an example a, uh, a model for your organization in a different country right yeah why not well, that's certainly right yeah certainly okay um Mark writes in quickly uh, using the one of the uh, APG apps. Um, the feedback says, Symptoms of APG syndrome include reserving seats on a mad dog at row 30 in the back. Wow. I think that's more than APG syndrome. That is uh, some kind of a psychological issue, not a medical issue. <laughs> because row 30 in the back of a mad dog is going to be like between the engines not a very pleasant place unless you really like engine noise. Thank you, Mark, for using the uh, the feedback feature of the APG app. Um, let's see, Brett from Ohio also, uh, well, no, he just sent this the normal way, uh, feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. I was bummed to hear about the meetup that happened at Osh with a few of your podcast followers. I was there for one and a half weeks and kept checking Facebook for some news of a get-together. I'm not a tweeter. Then I heard the first podcast after Air Venture and realized there was a gathering. I'll watch better for something in 2018. I knew there had to be an APG crowd at Osh. So, yeah, need to sign up for Twitter, but um, my bad. I guess uh, we didn't do a very good job or I didn't do a good job of keeping Facebook up. To, I don't really, I don't know. There's Facebook and I just don't really get along. I don't know why, but I just don't feel at home there. I don't know why. But, oh, Jeff, we like you on Facebook. I know, but it's just like it, it takes more of, a, of an investment for me uh, to do it. Twitter is just easier. It's just like a constant flow of stuff that you don't feel bad if you didn't <laughs> happen to be there for everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, if you told me, I would have put it on Facebook for you. I know. My fault. My bad. Sorry, Brett. Maybe uh, next time we're there, we'll, uh, we'll you know, you'll be better informed. Uh, another option is Slack. We did mention the uh, meetup uh, at Osh on Slack. And at the end of the show, Hillel will tell us how to join it. Uh, let's see. Moving on here. I think we're doing okay on time. Um, getting close to the end. Uh, Larry, uh, one of our coffee, co coffee, coffee fund cadre. French. Coffee. <laughs> Cafe. Members. Is that a, new, is that a mafia? <laughs> I don't know. Something. Also known as, uh, oh, AP, he's an AP geezer, APG geezer. Uh -huh. um, I, subs I subscribe to pilot workshops, and the current topic is go-arounds. I know that a go-around is one of your uh, points of discussion, so I've attached the link to 
the discussion of go around and recommend it to the APG community. It starts out by saying, I think the first sign of an unstabilized approach is that little voice in the back of your head telling you something is not right. You can always go around If it don't look right coming down Don't wait until your sight may be sliding on the ground You can always, always go around, around. So uh, that's the little voice I have in the back of my head. Uh, he said that would make a great song about go around. <laughs> I think he's using sarcasm there. Uh, there's also a comment section with many great contributions to the go-around discussion. I'll put the link to this um, article from Pilot Workshop in the show notes. Trevor gave us some audio feedback. He says, hi, Captain Jeff. Hope you're doing well. Totally envious of your recent trip to Oshkosh. I did pretty much the same air venture whirlwind tour in 2013. Flew into Madison, drove to Osh and saw as much as I could see in the precious few hours before I had to head to a meeting in Janesville. As I'm sure you found, a day is certainly not enough time to see everything there is to see. Oh, no. And it was like a half a day for me. And it was just a fraction of everything that you could possibly see at Oshkosh. Uh, Anyway, uh, when we had our meetup at the Pig and the Pint last October, I was working on finishing my instrument rating. I'm pleased to say that I wrapped it up a few months back and have been enjoying enjoying the flexibility and responsibility that comes with being able to fly in less than ideal conditions. During my checkride prep, a buddy and I were talking about how airline pilots maintain currency. Uh, and How often is it that you find yourself shooting approaches that count toward currency? I recorded the attached feedback to ask that question. Hope the audio quality is okay. Okay. He said he was on his way to Kansas in the airplane when I recorded it. So let us hear his recording Unless you wanted to say something before we do that, um, Dana? I was just going to say, you know, I've been up to Oshkosh, Oshkosh uh, four times now. And uh, every single time, I'm, I've even stayed out there and camped uh, camped out in, on the airfield. And even with being out there, even if you're there for the week, there's still not enough time to see everything that's there. It's just a matter of getting your interest and in, in what piques your interest in, in visiting those specific areas because it's it's just too big of a show. Yeah. All right. Well, let's hear from Trevor. He took the time to send us some audio feedback. So here we go. Hey, Captain Jeff and APG crew. It's Trevor from Colorado. Currently uh, 9,000 feet over eastern Colorado on our way to central Kansas. Just had a quick question regarding uh, maintaining instrument currency, and that is how often as airline pilots do you find yourselves going to the simulator in order to get your six approaches uh, every six months, or is is that even an issue? Not sure how the UK regulations are, but I would certainly welcome Captain Nick's input as well. Uh, And for that matter, Dr. Steph, how often uh, do you find yourself? Are you able to maintain currency in the aircraft itself? Or do you go to a Redbird simulator or something along those lines to do that? So it's pretty much clear skies and limited visibility. So this is pretty typical for Colorado weather in the summertime as far as, you know, there's not really IMC that you'd want to go flying in. So I do a lot of uh, currency stuff in the simulator itself, uh, even though we're on an IFR flight plan today. It doesn't look like we're going to encounter any IMC. So... Anyhow, keep up the great work. Appreciate all that you do. Uh, it's a tremendous asset to, to be able to uh, have you guys to listen to and really appreciate everything you do. Until next time, Pilot Trevor signing out. Thank you, Pilot Trevor. And uh, again, congratulations, by the way, for uh, getting your instrument uh, check ride and your instrument rating. That's uh, quite an accomplishment. 
Um, so to answer your question, I think that uh, Captain Nick runs into this a little bit more often than Dana and I do because Dana and I on one trip usually get about the same number of takeoffs and landings that Captain Nick gets in what, <laughs> like two or three months? Oh, yeah, yeah, almost certainly. And you're probably, uh, because of that, you're like 100%, 99.9% better at it than I am, I'm sure. Um, but the answer is when you're doing long haul, you don't get a lot of landings. Yeah, it does become a problem. Um, funnily enough, uh, reducing the number of pilots on the flight deck, as we've tended to over the years, has helped because uh, now you're much less likely to have a problem. And, of course, being the skipper, uh, I will generally, uh, and this is not through just hogging landings, but if the conditions are bad, then it's always the skipper that will take the responsibility of doing the landing. So from my point of view, it's a matter of uh, keeping my skill levels as high as I can. I'll, I'll generally take a landing every trip. Um, so th this was one of the rare ones. Uh, the last San Francisco I did, uh, I just gave both landings away to my first officers because I'd just done a New York and I've got another New York coming up and I was going to get at least one landing on that. But uh, so I average out about three landings a month and uh, that is quite adequate to keep me going. Uh, I only need three in 90 days, which actually isn't a very high level at all. I need to have done a landing on each type every 45 days. I think that's about right. I might have to check the numbers to see if that is accurate, but that's the kind of... Uh, uh, level of frequency we're looking at. So it's not particularly difficult. Um, you can do them in the simulator as so long as you're on a simulator that is certified for um, doing everything on. Some aren't. Some have got uh, relatively poor visuals. Some have got much better and are certified to do the whole nine yards. So, um, yeah. Uh, in the which case, you can do your three landings in the sim and then you don't you do another one for quite a while. So it's actually it's actually not hard. Um, if I was doing uh, long haul all the time and only getting two trips a month, then even that I was, I'd still, you know, they'll be okay. I, I call New York short haul. Sorry, uh, that's not really short haul. Jeff does short haul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're the ones that do that. Dana, do you ever have any trouble uh, keeping your currency up? You know, the, as far as instrument, instruments go uh, in landing currency, no. But the one thing that I, I've thought about in the past and, and maybe should do a little more thinking about is, is the uh, summertime flying. When we're flying around during the summertime, well, the daylight hours are so long that how often do you get your three takeoff and landings to full stop at nighttime? I don't think we're, and, I don't think we're required to have any certain number at night for the airlines. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'd have to, I'd have to look at it. I think it's just three I, takeoffs and landings. I don't think they specify daylight or night. I know. I could be wrong um, about you know, that. But. Well, for, for under the FARs under Part uh, 91, for sure, you have to have three takeoffs so and landings. So that's the thing that kind of got my attention in Trevor's question is that he said, you know, like what, you know, like doing approaches that count toward your currency. And I'm thinking, well, I think in Part 121, um, since we're always operating under uh, instrument flight rules, I think that um, you know, there's no the only basic requirement is the three takeoffs and landings every 90 days. Um, and it doesn't matter because you know, we don't log what kind of approach we flew. Uh, the only thing we log are, are takeoffs and landings. And that's it. So it must be different. Uh, the, the instrument rating in the uh, part 91 and part 121. 
It is. It is. You have to have, uh, um, I think it's what, six approaches. Because I know I heard um, Steph talk about this, you know, how like when yeah. she flew down to um, uh, Greenville, Spartanburg, and uh, she said, you know, she had to go and do another approach or she elected to do another approach. She said she could use that, you know, to count toward her currency. And I went, oh, oh, that's never something that we even talk about or think about in yeah, my world. In, in, G, in GA, you have to have uh, in, in, and that's where the question came in about the nighttime, too, is yeah. because in GA, you have to have three takeoff and landing. So full stop at night. I think that's within the previous 90 days, and, and this is, I'm, I'm jogging my brain, in, in the instrument approaches, I think it's six within the past 90 or maybe it's six months, I, I don't remember, but you have to have either actual logs or simulated, so you can have mm-hmm. somebody that's a, uh, uh, a, a pilot sit in the other seat while you do the approaches, so it can yeah. be simulated as well. I know that our uh, at our airline, the the long haul bo- boys and girls are always seemingly, you know, argue not arguing, but uh, fighting over, you know, getting the landing, getting the takeoff, that kind of thing to keep their 90 day currencies. And uh, if they don't, then, as Captain Nick mentioned, they could just make a quick trip over to the simulator and knock it out in a sim period. And then they're good for another 90 days. So anyway. Uh, thanks again, Trevor, for sending in the audio feedback. It was kind of cool hearing all that uh, radio comm in the background. That was neat. Um, let's see. We want to make sure we do this one on today's uh, episode because it's an interesting question from Andrea. Um, oh, excuse me. The beer's talking. Um, let's see. Hello, APG community. First of all, great podcast. I am enjoying every episode. Please keep it up. I have a question for you. I recently got the chance to visit the cockpit of a 747 of a European legacy carrier after a transatlantic flight and talk to the pilot and his two officers. Being a researcher in fluid dynamics, I asked them about the Reynolds number uh, that the main wing was at during cruise. To my astonishment, they did not know and hadn't heard of the Reynolds number since flight training. I tried asking more aerodynamics questions, but got more or less the same results. I sure didn't want to embarrass those pilots. I had just assumed that they would be very well-versed in aerodynamics. So here's my question to you guys. Do you know what Reynolds number you are flying at? And on a more serious note, how much aerodynamics is taught at flight school? Is that something you learn once and then forget about? Does it play any role in your training and do you have to keep current on it? Again, thanks for your great podcast. Be safe, Andrea. Okay, Nick, uh, what's the Reynolds number for uh, your airplane at cruise? Uh, well, it's an interesting one because uh, Reynolds is a dimensionless uh, quantity. So it's pretty much a meaningless number to us in the practical sense. So the safe answer is I haven't a clue and, uh, and neither will any pilot that I know of unless he happens to have a degree in fluid dynamics or something similar such as Andre and uh, has taken the uh, the bother to sit down and work it out. Because uh, it has no practical value to us, Andre, when we're actually flying an aircraft. I mean, uh, we touched on it, pardon me, and I taught uh, flying instructors um, about Reynolds and, uh, uh, you know, his uh, experiments. He was uh, what we fondly in the Air Force called a Victorian sewage engineer who was very interested in generating uh, smooth pipes that uh, were... Uh, being built in the under the streets of London, 
and uh, he wanted to try and work out uh, which pipes would be the best to get a nice uh, constant and smooth flow. And um, his uh, problem was, or not his problem, but what he was investigating was when a smooth flow in a pipe or across a wing or across a flat surface um, which we call laminar flow, breaks into a turbulent and chaotic flow, which obviously slows up forward progress if you're trying to get rid of your um, poo. Um, so um, we've had not, this is a bit of a pooey program. Yeah, it really week, is a it? crappy show, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, Reynolds' number is a, is a ratio of inertial forces um, compared with viscous forces. Uh, so uh, on a wing, um, we need to know the, where, the point at which uh, the airflow on our wing is, is relatively smooth and the point at which it moves into turbulence. Um, but, uh, you know, the only really when we're at very high angles of attack, because uh, if that point of uh, that transition to turbulence moves too far up the wing, Eventually, uh, the amount of uh, wing that is still producing left lift, the area juices to such a small amount that will no longer support the weight of the aircraft and will effectively stall the aircraft. So we're intimately conscious of our stalling angle uh, if we've got angle of attack indicators, uh, and a lot of aircraft do, or certainly the speed that at a certain weight will give us uh, that stalling angle of attack. So that is... <laughs> You want to hear us on a toilet flushing? It in the wasn't background. my toilet, Dana. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm sitting right here, minding my own business. Uh -huh. Okay. So anyway, so uh, I'm afraid what Reynolds did, and uh, I mean, if you you can sit, probably sit and work it out if you were clever enough at maths. And uh, so Reynolds' number is uh, the density uh, multiplied by uh, uh, that that's new, which is the velocity of the fluid over a uh, mu, which is the dynamic. Uh, viscosity of the fluid, which is equal to uh, um, nu uh, times the characteristic L, the characteristic of linear dimension over the kinematic viscosity of the fluid. Now, if, if you knew all those, you could probably work it out. And I'm sure Andre is clever enough to do that. And uh, I'd love to know what his calculations would give my 340. But even if he gave me the number, uh, it really uh, is uh, of no practical use to me. I mean, for those uh, aerodynamicists and aircraft engineers that uh, scale up models, and this is really, I think, where Reynolds's number is used a lot in the aviation industry, is that it allows you to test scale aircraft um, and uh, then use that um, the effects of scale aircraft and uh, expand them to what a real air, real size aircraft would do by applying Reynolds uh, theories, um, then that, that is very useful to you. But I'm afraid uh, once the aircraft's been built, we're trolling around in it. Uh, it's really just an academic um, number that's, I'm afraid, Andre, not going to have great deal of interest to us. As regards general aer aerodynamics, most of us understand, uh, you know, about lift and drag and how it's created and where they come from and why we need to put flaps and um, slats down to uh, uh, change the shape, how uh, we, uh, uh, what factors affect lift over the wings. So I, I expect uh, uh, Dana will know that the coefficient 
a lift is uh, half row V squared S so that he can apply all those factors when he's thinking about making an approach uh, and what will affect uh, his approach. But quite honestly, so many of those are fixed, like the wing area. You can't change that really except by putting out flaps and increasing it. Um, you can't do much about the density of the air. That's going to be pretty much the what you're given when you come to land. So many of these factors are outside our control. Uh, we tend to deal with the more realistic aspects of keeping the right speed, keeping the right angle of attack, and uh, making sure we put the gear down. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but the academic side uh, is, to a certain extent, just um, out there at, uh, to give us an interest, not to uh, necessarily be applied every day. Well, of course, as everyone knows, um, a vortex street can occur around cylinders and spheres for any fluid cylinder size and fluid speed, provided that the flow has a Reynolds number between roughly 40 and 1,000. Good. I just read yeah. that from the Wikipedia article on uh, Reynolds number. Yeah, oh, you um, weren't cheating, were you? Zero. Uh, well, yeah, like you had that formula in your head. About the uh, uh, well, Reynolds yeah, number, uh, new uh, Lima over no, uh -huh. liar. Okay, uh, but I knew yeah. I knew CL is half row v squared s. <laughs> I mean, uh, and E equals MC. You guys uh, do that? Uh, whatever. I've, okay. I've got I've got loads of FAA manuals in, in my house. You know, when I was learning to become a flight instructor, and uh, there this Reynolds uh, theory I've never heard of, actually. Because I'm not a I'm not a military guy. No, it has uh, nothing yeah. to do with the military. <laughs> it's, no, all, was, it's just aerodynamics and and flow. Uh, really, more fluid dynamics, but which is also well, you know, applicable and, and, too. And, and I'm, I'm going back, and you know, I went to school for aviation uh, management and, and flying and everything else. And I maybe it was mentioned way back when, but you know, the LD Max diagram is really um, what we. If you guys know what I'm talking about, the LD Max, correct? Yes. Oh, yes. Total drag, and your parasite induced drag and total drag, and where your your stall in airspeed. It's it's basically a diagram that will will show you where based on your your um, weight versus your speed versus your thrust, at which point the aircraft will be stalling, um, and that's more more of what I'm concerned about is. If I'm overloading the aircraft, or if I don't have enough airspeed, if I have too much drag, or not enough, you know, not enough lift, um, at what point is my critical uh, wing going to be critical? So, uh, in none none of the FAA training materials does it ever mention the Reynolds. Okay, so you know what? Newlies. We probably could have saved about ten minutes uh, by just saying to your no. question, Andrea. No, we do not know what the Reynolds number is that we're flying at because it's not but, important. But this is an aviation show and we're talking about Yeah, well, this is, I think we've lost uh, the, the, the last three or four people that were listening to the show in the last <laughs> few minutes. Hey, look, Jeff, one day they may put a Reynolds number gauge on the in the mm -hmm. cockpit, in which case we'll all go, what's that for? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so aerodynamics is something that you learn very early on and um, honestly – you don't really go into a lot of depth uh, in this kind of thing, uh, just the basics of aerodynamics. And unless you're a, like an aerodynamics, um, you know, in aerodynamic engineering kind of a major and you get into depth on that. But uh, that's it. So we deal in practicalities and, you know, pragmatic um, issues and not theoretical. So, yeah, we're the operators, not the uh, scientists. So. 
Are you saying it wasted people's time? Um, I'm saying that yes, you, uh, this, yes, you, you, you and Captain Nick answering the question just wasted everybody's time. I just thought he was a nice <laughs> book and it was an interesting question. Yeah, it isn't it? Well, okay. I have this nice, nice book with all the tabs on it so that I know where everything is. Okay, well, is. I think that uh, the more important thing to talk about right now is the fact that uh, we really appreciate everybody listening to the show and uh, subscribing to the podcast via iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn and all those great places that uh, you can listen to great podcasts. And uh, we're on social media. Captain Nick is going to tell us about how you can follow the crew and the community on social media. Well, you can find us on Facebook at uh, Facebook forward slash Alan Pilot Guy, or you can get us uh, on Twitter under the handle at APG Crew. Yes. And Hillel. Uh, Hillel, come on out. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. Thank you. All right, there you go. Join up uh, Slack, contact Hillel, uh, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and uh, again, our all-important Airline Pilot Guy website where you can learn about the community of the show, uh, the crew, um, ways you can contribute uh, financially to the coffee fund, and uh, information about how you can get your very own smartphone uh, app, either on the uh, Android platform or the iOS, the Apple platform. And uh, until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Yeah, bye, everybody. Have a great afternoon, a great evening, a great morning, wherever you are. Good day.
I go? Statements, views, and opinions expressed on the Airline Pilot Guy podcast may not represent the views, opinions, or policies of any airline, real or fictionalized, mentioned, implied, or accidentally slipped by any of the participants, guests, or feedback providers you may or may not have heard, may or may not believe you may have heard on this or any prior episode of the Airline Pilot Guy podcast.